Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. From July to November in 1974, 20 people turned up dead, murdered, their bodies scattered across a handful of states, 14 women and girls, six men and boys, their ages ranging from 65 down to only seven. Some had been shot, some had been strangled, one had been savagely stabbed with a pair of scissors. Some seemed to have been killed as an afterthought during a burglary, others murdered while camping or after being picked up at a bar. Some of their bodies were found within hours of their deaths, other bodies have never been found. Some of the corpses that were found had been sexually assaulted. Some of the victims had been raped while alive, at least one sexually, desec- at least one sexually desecrated after death. Police in various states were stumped. The murders would never be connected until the capture of the killer, until after some confession tapes the killer made before his arrest were finally handed over to authorities. Before his capture, various investigators, if they were even familiar with more than one of this killer's murderous crimes, were left to wonder, was this the work of one man, two men working together, possibly more? Or were the various murders not connected at all, just a series of random killings? Was the person or people they were looking for a sexually motivated rapist or a burglar who didn't like to leave witnesses behind or a psychopath who just killed for the joy of killing or all of the above? The victims were killed in several different states from Florida all the way back to the West Coast, uh, more murders back east. Finally, by November 1974, the police had a lead for at least some of these murders. A reporter named Sandy Fox had spent a week with a man who told her his name was Daryl Golden. He'd picked her up in a hotel bar and they'd spent a week together, during which time Sandy noticed that the young man drove a swanky white car and had a lot of credit cards, but never never had any cash. And he wanted Sandy to write a book about him, saying that he would shortly be dead for something terrible he'd already done. According to Fox, this guy was a dreamboat, sexy young dude who seemed to have everything going for him, but he was not a dreamboat. He was a nightmare who tried to rape one of Fox's acquaintances shortly after she and he parted ways. And then the police questioned her, soon thinking that she might be an accomplice to this nightmare, a nightmare she now found out was an active serial killer. Paul John Knowles, the Casanova killer, a native of Jacksonville, Florida, 
Knowles had his first of many, many run-ins with the law as a young child. After several early instances of juvenile delinquency, his family agreed to let him be sent to the Florida School for Boys, also known then as the Arthur G. Dozier School for Boys, a hellish place where boys aged 5 to 20 were routinely beaten, sexually assaulted, deprived of much-needed help and guidance, and sometimes it seems they were murdered. Knowles spent much of his teen years there, and then he was first placed in an actual prison shortly after turning 19, following getting caught for kidnapping a cop. None of his offenses up to this point were of an especially violent nature. None of the several following uh, convictions were either he'd get into trouble, generally for some form of theft, then spend approximately six months in jail on average after each conviction. And there were many convictions. By the time his days of being a free man were all over, Paul had spent well over half his life incarcerated in some form. While most of his early crimes, again, were not violent, revolved primarily around auto theft, burglary, things like that, crimes he would later mirror by stealing from his murder victims, maybe someone should have still seen his murder spree coming. Long before he started killing, Knowles made it known to many that he wanted to become infamous for being a bad guy. He was impressed by stories of some old-time outlaws and larger-than-life criminals he'd read about as a kid. And he wanted their notoriety. He wanted the fear and respect they once commanded. He wanted to live on in stories about his terrible deeds, just like the infamous villains he admired. He wanted uh, some kid to be reading about his violent exploits someday. He didn't want to continue on as a common thief, spending most of his life behind bars for a series of largely forgettable acts of petty crime. He wanted to be much worse than that. He wanted to be the baddest of them all. And then one day at the age of 28, possibly brought on by his fiance, deciding not to marry him following yet another return to jail uh, in Florida and then a jailbreak or followed by rather, uh, Knowles soon decided to go full fuck it. He decided that murder, lots of murder would be his ticket to infamy. He actually thought he'd make his mother rich by giving her the rights to his terrible life story, a story that would certainly be reimagined in his mind in numerous best-selling books, hit TV shows and blockbuster movies. But, and I'm guessing you know this already, since the name Paul John Knowles is not a commonly covered piece of true crime lore, the infamy he so craved never came. But I am sharing a story today. Glad he'll never know about it or profit off it in any way. And neither will his mother, who's now long dead. Now his tale is one of thousands covered during a current cultural true crime obsession. Nothing special about it. But it is darkly interesting, so away we go. The terrifying larger-than-life story of Paul John Knowles. Today, on a fit for October, the Halloween season is the best time to talk about real-life monsters edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. I'm Dan Cummins, Master Sucker. Shill for Bear Engulfing Voracious Intergalactic Leviathan Incorporated, a.k.a. Bear Evil Incorporated. And you are listening to Time Suck, a Bad Magic production, possible subsidiary of Bear Evil Incorporated. Uh, Hail Nimrod, Hail Lucifina, praiseable jangles, and glory be to Triple M. I also heard that Michael motherfucking McDonald's entire song catalog recently acquired by Bear Evil Incorporated. B-E-A-R, not to be confused with B-A-Y-E-R. You get it. If you don't, maybe listen to last week's episode. Uh, Real quick, if you're watching this one, you notice that I am not in my normal setting. I am in the Scared to Death studio. Uh, We had tech issues this morning and had to record this episode to get it on time before I left town for Boston for some shows. And just not enough time to hop on the, the phone with tech support to figure out some lagging issues with our Black Magic gear. 
Who knows? Restarted the computer, did all the things. But I'm actually kind of excited because this is not the normal setup. It makes my mind active in a different way. I feel especially engaged right now with this story. And I'm so happy that a while back we decided to do both studios with the same kind of gear. And part of the reasoning was, well, if the gear goes out in one studio or, or has problems, we can at least go to the other studio and record. And that is what I'm doing today. Uh, very excited. And Logan, Keith, and I, uh, we troubleshot that stuff as best we could this morning. Came up with a, a, a quick fix getting over here. Still having all the buttons work and everything. And uh, I'm actually pretty pretty proud of us right now. Uh, also, hoping I had fun in Boston last week at Laughs Boston. Getting ready to go on a red eye as I record this episode uh, or head to the airport for that. Well, to Seattle and then a red eye. No, no red eyes coming out of the Spokane airport. Uh, thanks to get, well, maybe one, Chicago. What am I talking about? <laughs> but uh, thanks again to everyone who has uh, been scooping up stand-up tickets to, uh, to shows between now and next April. Grand Rapids is next, followed by Louisville. Looking ahead to next year, the added show in St. Louis, January 28th, already half sold out. All the shows moving along. Tickets at dancommons.tv. It's uh, very exciting. Uh, and if you head to badmagicmerch.com, you can find official tour merch and you can get tickets to Scared to Death Live, Haunted Halloween, True Tales of Hallow's Eve Horror 2, which will be recorded in this studio, uh, the Scared to Death podcast live Halloween show. Unless there's problems here, then we'll move it to the other studio. Unless there's problems in both, and then we'll fucking blow up the building. No, I'll be telling Halloween themed horror tales that will uh, only be told Thursday, October 27th, 6 p.m. Pacific time, and uh, I believe Lindsay will as well. And these stories will live online for seven days for anyone who grabs a ticket so you can watch it on Halloween or watch it again. And there'll be a live chat room to enjoy the show with others with, to ask us questions through, etc. And you can go to badmagicmerch.com for tickets. Uh, also this month, donating to a very sweet, uplifting nonprofit that Bojangles, our three-legged, one-eyed, fearless pitbull mascot slash time-suck demigod, approves of very much. He may have even uh, insisted upon this charity. Guide Dogs for the Blind. Donating $15,029 with an additional $1,669 added to the scholarship fund. Guide Dogs for the Blind believes in connecting people, dogs, and communities to transform the lives of individuals with visual impairments. For more info or to donate yourself, go to guidedogs.com. And this charity was earmarked before the recent damage caused by Hurricane Ian, uh, deadliest hurricane to hit Florida since 1935. The Florida death toll uh, at over 100. I know others have also passed away in at least uh, South Carolina, perhaps a, a, an additional state. And uh, so sorry to anyone listening affected by this hurricane in any way. Finally, are you a fan of posters and of this podcast? If so, this next bit of information is for you. We've added a poster section to the merch store. Logan just dropped a bunch of designs and we'll keep this section updated as he continues to release more and more posters in the weeks ahead. You can head on over to badmagicmerch.com. Check out a lot of cool shit over there. Uh, new posters banner on the homepage to find it. A monster version of Nikola Tesla, Richard Ramirez, Albert Fish. Uh, more mashups in there right now. The Art Warlock continues to impress. So hail the Art Warlock. And now for a topic that brings us back to true crime. Uh, with one of the most little known, yet uh, one of the more horrifying serial killers to come out of a decade filled with horrifying serial killers, the 1970s. Uh, the so-called Casanova killer, Paul John Knowles, a.k.a. PJK. And PJK was scary for everyone because there was no demographic he was after. There was no age or gender he wasn't willing to kill. Uh, Paul would be nicknamed the Casanova Killer for what many perceived to be his great looks, his charm, and away with ladies. Uh, there's an image of him that shows up first online when you search for him. Seems to uh, fit the Casanova title. It's a photo of Paul wearing some kind of dark-looking turtleneck or high-necked shirt under an overcoat. 
looking down into the right cigarette hanging off his lip, his mouth, uh, or his hair, excuse me, flopping over his forehead like he's fucking James Dean. Has these intense eyebrows, high cheekbones, hair is all windswept just so. In short, he, uh, he did look like the kind of guy that just based on physical appearance, I can see women easily going for. He had the look of a sensitive bad boy, leather jacket wearing rebel with a soft heart underneath that cynicism. Uh, Paul was able to charm people from both sexes, able to pick up women, uh, even from prison, able to pick up guys from bars. Uh, in the middle of his crime spree, he would even find time to spend a romantic week with a journalist named Sandy Fox, whom he picked up in a hotel bar. Sandy was intrigued by the mysterious and handsome stranger. Why do you have lots of credit cards, but no cash? Why did he keep saying things like he had less than a year to live because of something bad he'd done? She had no idea at the time that the man she was jumping into bed with was a serial killer who had already killed multiple men, women, and children and killed them very shortly before she'd met him. Despite his good looks, his label of Casanova may be something of a misnomer. Though he certainly could be charming, or at least uh, charming enough, I feel like the name uh, of of Casanova killer implies someone who was uh, maybe a bit more successful than Knowles was in some ways. Type of guy who could pick up women and take them back to his, you know, fancy ass bachelor pad. The kind of man like they, like he walked out of a romance novel, you know, gives these women rolling orgasms. Just one hell of a lover, the best sex of their lives. Strong when he needs to be, sensitive when he does not. A leader in the business world and a leader in the bedroom. Paul was neither. He often wore the clothes of his murder victims. Didn't seem like he ever had much success at all in business. Not sure he literally ever had a straight job. Uh, wasn't even that good at theft. Never stole enough to keep him uh, going for more than a few weeks or so at a time. No big bank robberies or impressive diamond heists under his belt, that's for sure. Not a stallion in the bedroom. He actually struggled mightily and constantly with impotence. At least when he was with women. At least when he was with women uh, who he was not raping and killing. Paul John Knowles was not really a Casanova. He was a deeply troubled child and young man who spent most of his life passing in and out of juvenile detention centers and prison. He was a fucking loser who thought a murder spree could be his shortcut to fame and fortune. He was no Ted Bundy who could actually charm women, who did have success, uh, you know, had success, excuse me, in the non-criminal world, but then threw away the possibility of being an actual Casanova, unable or unwilling to free himself from his incredibly sexually violent impulses. As scary as Bundy was, Paul John Knowles, in a way, maybe was scarier. You know, just to the overall population. He didn't uh, seem to hurt and kill due to some kind of compulsion, some kind of sickness. Didn't seem to be trapped in some kind of psychotic sexual loop, reliving some moment over and over, raping, killing different representations, perhaps, of uh, some woman who had hurt him. PJK didn't seem to have been led by any type of inner beast. No bloodthirsty, sadistically sexual inner killer that longed for chaos. For Paul, it was all ego. Human life simply meant nothing to him. You know, if you stood in the way of cash, credit cards, a getaway car, some clothes, you were disposable. Whether you were young or old, man or woman, no one was safe, and you added to the body count that he really cared about. He might just kill you to increase that body count so he could feel like he was uh, one step closer to being the baddest of them all, the worst serial killer the world had ever seen. A longing for fame seemed to be his primary motivation to kill. And somehow that does make him uh, uh, more dangerous to me, at least with uh, most of these killers. You can kind of understand why they're killing, who they're killing. And if you can understand that, you can at least uh, fool yourself into thinking you could protect yourself from them. You know, stay away from certain scenarios. Don't perform sex work in such and such an area. Don't get into a car alone if you're a woman between the ages of blank and blank. Uh, Don't go out drinking at the bar alone if you're a man between the ages of blank and blank in this area. Don't hitchhike. Uh, 
Be extra vigilant when you walk into your car. Uh, the killer always strikes at night and prefers, you know, uh, dark parking lots, that sort of thing. PJK had no real MO. He wasn't scratching some sadistic itch. He might kill you during the day, might kill you at night, might break into your house and let you live for some reason, might just shoot you when he walks in the door, just on sight. You know, might, might knock on your door, might uh, sneak through a window, might approach you in a bar, might approach you in a rest area. Didn't matter, you know, uh, what you look like, who you were, did it all to become famous. At least get a book written about him. Sandy Fox, that journalist he hooked up with for a week, would end up writing a book about him. Killing Time, later republished as uh, The Secret, actually. No, as a natural born killer. Uh, but it never sold that well. And then none of the proceeds went to his mom like he hoped. Paul's plan for infamy failed miserably. But his story did pique my morbid curiosity. When I came across him on a, on a long list of serial killers online, what kind of person ends up going on the kind of quest he did during the last few, few months of his free life? Well, let's find out after settling into the, uh, the place and time of our story today. Headed back to the 1970s. Seems like a lot of our darker episodes have taken place in the 70s. Which isn't really fair to the decade, because the 70s wasn't actually all that dark. I mean, if anything, it was an era marked by exuberance, creativity, uh, major scientific breakthroughs, adults disco dancing at sweaty nightclubs to BG songs, kids keeping pet rocks, kids and adults watching beautiful lady cops take down baddies on Charlie's Angels. Hello, 1970s Farrah Fawcett. Hey, Lucifina. My God, so sexy. Holy shit. Uh, just prior to the AIDS epidemic... America's newfound sexual freedom discovered in the 60s was still going uh, real strong in the 70s. For many people, the decade of the 70s was full of the best times of their lives. It's easy to find great weed. Coke was hitting the scene and it wasn't laced yet with uh, shitty big pharma opioids yet. Uh, badass muscle cars were pretty affordable still. Made in America. Blue-collar jobs paid middle-class workers enough to buy themselves a nice house, a big boat, and one of those muscle cars. We were doing some cool shit in space as a nation. On May 14th, 1973, NASA launched Skylab, the first American space station, taking man one step closer to an intergalactic future. Five years later, on July 25th, 1978, another scientific breakthrough would occur when Louise Brown, the first test tube baby, was born, opening up the miracle of artificial insemination to happy parents across the world ever since. More and more people were gaining access to the things they'd been denied under old systems of prejudice, uh, getting out from under the yoke of Cold War era conservatism and uh, seeing a world unlike one they'd ever seen before. A more connected, more liberated world with more options for how you wanted to live your life. Well, based on the dirtbags we've covered so many times here, there was also a dark side to the 70s. A lot of serial killing went down. January of 1974, the year Paul John Knowles' brief but bloody murder spree took place. John Wayne Gacy killed his second victim and stashed the corpse in his closet. When blood leaked from the young man's nose and mouth and stained the carpet, Gacy developed his signature of plugging future kills using cloth rags or the victim's own underwear. On January 15th, Dennis Rader, a.k.a. BTK, kicked off his decades-long murder spree by annihilating four members of the Otero family in Wichita, Kansas. Just two weeks later, Ted Bundy, who would rape and murder several women across multiple state lines before being executed, claimed his first documented victim on January 31st. He broke into the bedroom of 21-year-old Linda Ann Healy, senior at the University of Washington, beat her until she was unconscious and abducted her. Her decapitated and dismembered remains wouldn't be found until a year later. 
There was a notable uptick in serial killers in the 1970s. According to a homicide database at Radford University, there were 605 active serial killers in the U.S. in the 1970s compared to 217 in the 1960s. So just almost three times as many. The following decade, the 80s would actually see the most thus far 768 known serial killers were active. Many of the new serial killers in the 70s capitalized on a new pool of liberated young women who weren't afraid to hitchhike or hook up with strangers. They took advantage of access to highways to make uh, quicker getaways across state lines. What's really scary to me when I think about this is, was this new opportunity the only real roadblock for hundreds of people to not have become serial killers the decade before? Like if it was way easier to get away with it, how many serial killers would we have right now? Last decade saw 117 serial killers in the U.S. Huge drop from the 70s and 80s, you know, because it's uh, a lot easier to get caught now, I think. Have hundreds of people in recent years just thought some version of, I mean, yeah, I fucking love the serial kill. Holy shit, well, I love it. But uh, with modern investigation methods, <laughs> get out of here, forget about it. I guess I'll just go and see, kinda, see what kind of horrific porn is out there in the dark web today instead of getting my hands dirty, raping, torturing, and killing myself. <laughs> no thanks. I mean, if law enforcement didn't exist at all, and we lived in a truly anarchist society, how many serial killers would be active in the U.S. alone right now? Thousands, I think. Tens of thousands? How much does fear of being caught or, or tougher access to potential victims go towards keeping some people from just not uh, going on a fucking, you know, torture and murder spree? Pretty creepy to think about. That only fear of punishment keeps some of us from going full evil. Okay, enough speculation. Let's get into the known details now. I did find this highly entertaining. I hope you do too. Uh, let's get into the life and crimes of Paul John Knowles, PJK, the Casanova killer in today's Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. Paul John Knowles was born April 17th, 1946. In Orlando, Florida, to parents Thomas and Bonnie Knowles. He grew up a two-hour drive north of Orlando in Jacksonville. When he was a small child, Jacksonville was only two decades past the great Florida land boom, a period in the 1920s of significant real estate development, during which hordes of train passengers passed through Jacksonville on their way south to the new tourist destinations of southern Florida. 1920, Florida had a population of 962,000 people, roughly. Five years later, the population had grown to about 1,264,000. Pretty uh, huge increase. What caused that land boom? Well, the big accelerator in Florida's population explosion was the well-publicized extensions of the Florida East Coast Railway, first to West Palm Beach in 1894, then further down to Miami in 1896, and then finally all the way down to Key West, 1912. Portions of the Everglades were uh, now being drained, creating new dry land to build on. Also, World War I had cut off uh, rich East Coast Americans from their uh, bougie winters along the French Riviera, increasing the appeal of parts of the U.S. that had a Mediterranean or tropical climate. Uh, the following, or then following World War I, large numbers of American, Americans finally had the time and money to travel to Florida and to invest in real estate. Educated and skilled workers were receiving paid vacations, pensions, and fringe benefits, which made it easier for them to travel and to purchase real estate. The automobile was also becoming a more common way for families to travel, and Florida felt like the perfect destination to many. Many of the people who migrated into Florida were middle-class Americans with families, and unlike typical visitors of the past, these newer arrivals wanted homes and land rather than resorts and hotels. 
Finally, culture-wise, the Roaring Twenties uh, was a time when a person's wealth and success was measured by what they owned. The economy was prospering. Credit was easy to acquire if one had a decent job. And a lot of people who recognized the economic change uh, wanted to make money by selling land uh, and pouring into Florida. All of this and more led to Jacksonville uh, to building itself as the gateway to Florida. A lot of people chose to settle at the gateway as well. Uh, Also having nothing to do with the Florida land boom, a lot of Jacksonville's early settlers would be military members and their families. In the 1940s, Jacksonville would be known mainly for the U.S. Navy. A significant part of Jacksonville's growth in the 20th century came from the presence of the Navy. On October 15, 1940, Naval Air Station Jacksonville, NAS Jacksonville or NAS Jacks, on the west side became the first Navy installation in the city. This base was a major training center during World War II with over 20,000 pilots and air crewmen being trained there. After the war, the Navy's elite Blue Angels were established at NAS Jacks. And today, NAS Jacks is the third largest Navy installation in the country, employs over 23,000 civilian and active duty personnel. The Naval base continued to be a key training ground in the 1950s and 1960s, and the population of the city rose dramatically. Between 1920 and 1970, The Jacksonville population increased from 91,558 to 528,865, over five-fold in 50 years. And by the 1970s, more than half the residents in Jacksonville still had some tie to the naval base, whether it be a relative station there or due to um, employment opportunities. Due to population growth by 1970, an international airport in the area would be opened. I've flown in there myself a couple times. Uh, Long before that, Jacksonville was the place Paul John Knowles would call home. He had two older brothers and four sisters, all of the family supported by Thomas's uh, carpentry job, kind of, kind of supported. Uh, Clifton Knowles, one of Paul's brothers, the only one named in sources and the only one I can find who's spoken publicly about his brother, shared some details of Paul's childhood in 2019 with the makers of a 45-minute documentary on uh, PJK produced by the local NBC affiliate in Atlanta, 11 Alive, saying... We were so poor. There were seven of us living in three rooms. And not three bedrooms. No, three total rooms. He said a great room, one little bedroom, and a kitchen. (laughs) Holy shit. For a bathroom, the family had an outhouse with, of course, no indoor plumbing. Probably had a uh, shitload of fun snakes and spiders, though. Uh, Paul's parents slept in the great room, a.k.a. the living room, and all seven kids slept in the bedroom at some point. Not sure if all of them were there uh, at one time, but I bet at least four or five were crammed into that uh, little room in the sweltering heat. Fuck, that would suck. They certainly didn't have AC. Doubt they even had a fan, right? The average, uh, average high sets in the 90s all summer long in Jacksonville. The humidity sits around 80%. And according to heat index charts, 90 degrees Fahrenheit plus 80% humidity feels like 113 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> Check this out. 95 degrees with 80% humidity. It reaches that all the time in Jacksonville in the summer. Feels like 134 degrees. Fuck my life. Now imagine the temperature feeling like it's between 100 and 134 degrees on a hot night when the temperature just won't drop and the air is still and you're trying to fall asleep in a tiny bedroom with no AC and four or five other people in it. I feel like this alone could drive someone to kill. Surprise Florida, just based on temperature, isn't full of murder every summer. Maybe too many people dealing with the heat are just too tired to murder. Like they'd like to, but they just don't have the energy. Just, oh, dude, I'll cut your fucking head off right now, but feels like my balls have been sitting in a crock pot all day. And my electrolytes are so fucked up. And I just, I can't do much of anything other than just sweat through three sets of clothes before noon, apparently. But if I get hydrated and it cools off, you're a dead man. Uh, Clifton painted a picture of a hot and humid family home, also full of a lot of abuse. 
saying in today's climate, we would have all been taken out of the home and probably fostered out. There was a lot of physical abuse, whippings. Uh, My father would call them uh, whippings. I call them beatings myself. When you leave black and blue marks from a belt, that's called a beating. And the old man, he was beating Paul with his fists. And he was about to beat him to death. And then when Paul got well enough, he ran away. Outside of the home, young Paul apparently ran wild and raised hell. He showed some dark leadership qualities early on, attracted a group of boys who followed him loyally, impressed by how he talked back to adults without fear. I mean, if he was able to bounce back after taking beating after beating from his dad, why fear some stranger, right? Probably not any worse than his father. Paul seemed to like the admiration of his uh, little followers a great deal, maybe even thrived on it. 1953, when Knowles was seven, he started breaking the law by stealing bicycles. His parents would say they tried to control him, which probably meant beating the shit out of him more often, but Paul wouldn't be stopped. If he was restrained or confronted, he would allegedly explode with rage. I mean, I get it. There's a behavior here. I mean, option A, don't steal stuff and be super poor and sweaty and miserable and have your dad beat you. Or option B, steal stuff and be super poor and sweaty and miserable and have your dad beat you. But also sometimes get to ride a cool bike. Sometimes around the age of eight or sometime, after getting caught numerous times for petty theft already, he ends up beginning a cycle of incarceration, followed by a brief stretch of freedom, followed by more incarceration, a little bit of freedom, more incarceration. That cycle continues for the rest of his life. The uh, rest of his childhood would be spent bouncing back and forth between foster homes, reformatories, and prison. wonder if any of the places uh, he went to were worse than his home life. I mean, a detention center isn't much of a, ter- a deterrent if uh, it's better than your house. Sandy Fox, that journalist he'd later briefly hook up with, said his childhood was grim, full of uniforms, discipline, and few possessions. PJK later told a prison psychiatrist that after he ran away from home for the last time, he spent three days sleeping in the woods, messing around during the day at local uh, penny arcades, shooting galleries, stuff like that. He said, and then they caught me and they sent me home and the next day I was in school and they called me across the street to the police station and they started talking to me and that's when they took me up there. Up there was the Florida School for the Boys, or Four Boys, also known as the Arthur G. Dozier School for Boys, a reform school operated by the state of Florida in the panhandle 600-ish person town of Mariana, or Mariana, uh, 225 miles west of Jacksonville from January 1st, 1900 to uh, June 30th, 2011. And by the time he was 17, PJK would have been sent to the Florida School for Boys six times on charges ranging from breaking and entering to grand larceny. Never seemed remorseful for any of these crimes. Also should have never been sent to this uh, hellhole. No one should have been. This place actually was a lot worse than his childhood home, it seems, in all likelihood. The Florida School for Boys would become infamous as a place where very little reform occurred, and instead a lot of fucking abuse went down. For most of its history, the school was known for harsh conditions and brutal treatment. For 111 years, the school would be where Florida sent its bad boys. And also where it sent pretty good boys who were just poor or uh, maybe just like to smoke, something that simple. Boys would be sent there for rape, assault, but also for skipping school, smoking cigarettes, or just running from broken homes. Some were tough, some were confused. Basically all were afraid, all were uh, you know, uh, treading through their formative years in the custody of the state. They were as young as five. Some sources actually say as young as three uh, or as old as 21. And it seems that nearly everyone sent there would be tortured in ways that would stay secret for many, many years. A 2013 investigation finally revealed that over 50 boys' bodies were secretly buried on the grounds of the school. And that at least 81 students died while in custody there of suspicious circumstances. And to date, over 500 former students have claimed to have received brutal beatings 
Real number is probably in the thousands, probably in the tens of thousands, possibly. There was a consistent culture of abuse at the school for the entirety of its history, it seems. Uh, One man, former prisoner there, uh, when he was 16, Jerry Cooper, was interviewed a decade ago in 2012 when he was 67 years old. And he said, you didn't know when it was coming. These were not spankings. These were beatings, brutal beatings. Cooper said he did his best, and there's so many accounts like this. Cooper said he did his best to stay out of trouble, but after several weeks, he learned about the beatings firsthand. School staff got him out of bed at 2 a.m. one day, took him to a building known as the White House, where most of the beatings went down. When he was there, uh, or when he got there, they threw him on a bed, tied his feet and hands to the bed, and uh, or like to post like underneath the bed, began to beat him with a leather strap. And Cooper recalled, the first blow lifted me a foot and a half off that bed. And every time that strap would come down, you could hear the shuffle on the concrete because their shoes would slide, right? They're just like putting so much force into it. You could hear the shush, shush, bam, shush, shush, bam. Cooper said he passed out from the pain at some point during the beating, and then the lashes kept coming. A boy in the next room later told him he counted 135 hits. That's fucking absurd. Lashing a kid 135 times. A kid who was passed out for part or most of it. Sometimes I like to picture my favorite uh, Marvel superhero or anti-hero, or maybe kind of villain, but I like him, the Punisher, uh, showing up in moments like, like this, uh, you know, and just fucking executing every sadistic staff member involved. Uh, Cooper was sent to the Florida School for Boys in 1961, so he probably would have known Knowles, uh, who would have been 14 or 15 at that time and also incarcerated in that shithole. Another boy who went there around the time that Knowles was there was Willie Haynes. In the late 1950s, Willie was a 13-year-old kid who slicked back his long hair like Elvis. He'd been sent to the, uh, you know, the school after being convicted of stealing a car. And Willie said years later that not only did he not steal that car, he had no idea how to drive any car. But some other kids said that they thought they saw him do it, and that was enough for the judge. And he didn't care. Willie didn't care. Not at first. At first, he was excited to go to the Florida School for Boys. He'd heard it had a band and a football team, maybe even Boy Scouts, and it didn't cost a penny to participate in that stuff. It was better than he had it at home. He kissed his mom goodbye at the courthouse, left Tampa in the back of a state cruiser, thinking he was on his way to a better life than the one he was leaving behind. How fucking sad. Willie wasn't scared as the state car pulled onto the gravel road that led to the state's only boys' juvenile reformatory. No fences, manicured lawns, tall pines, and stately buildings. He thought it looked like a college. He never thought he'd get to go to college. And he thought, you know, this had to be better than my shitty home life. Inside, he signed a ledger. Uh, William Haynes Jr., April 11th, 1958. A boy now escorted Willie to uh, Tyler Cottage, which would be his bunkhouse, told him to keep his belongings in locker number 252. He was given a toothbrush, pajamas, and his own military bunk. And the poor kid from Tampa felt like he was finally living in a good home. But that feeling didn't last long. He was there barely a week when it first happened. Some bullies caught him outside the showers. Next thing he knew, he was in the middle of a tangle of feet and fists. Uh, Willie knew how to fight. He fought back hard. He was choking one of the attackers in a headlock when a staff member busted in and saw it. The school's disciplinarian, R.W. Hatton, soon was asking Willie who he'd been fighting. But he didn't want to be a rat, get beat up for that so he wouldn't give up any names. And then Hatton told Willie that now he was going down. Some goons on Hatton's command now dragged him across the manicured campus toward the squat concrete building called the White House, dragged him through the door. Just outside the door, he said he saw a limp figure Right, lying still, an unconscious boy, perhaps a dead boy, blood on his pajamas. The stench of blood, sweat, and shit hit him as he walked to the door. He tripped and fell, and a man grabbed him and slung him on top of the bloody mattress where he was beaten for hours. Over 18 months, staff would drag Willie into the White House over and over, each time literally beaten for hours. 
When he'd get back to the cottage where he slept, he'd stand in the shower before he went to uh, bed, let the cold water wash bits of his underwear out of lacerations across his ass and back as blood ran down the drain. For decades, boys at the Florida School for Boys were tortured like this and in a variety of other ways. You know, they were stuffed in industrial dryers just to amuse the uh, fucking goon guards, tumbled in the heat, trying not to break their necks. They were smothered in their beds until they were nearly dead or maybe sometimes until they were dead. They were beaten, violently sexually assaulted in an underground chamber the boys called the rape room for pretty fucking obvious reasons where numerous staff members would repeatedly rape students. And uh, there were the dozens of kids who died, the ones who ended up buried on the grounds uh, of this place in unmarked graves. Former students remember these kids like the kid who tried to run away and died from exposure while hiding under a cottage. Another remembered a story about a boy who was taken to the White House, never seen again. In all likelihood, he was beaten to death. When Troy Warren, a former student, heard of the investigation in the cemetery, his mind went back to his stay at the school many years ago. And he would tell journalists that he and another boy were once ordered to dig three holes behind the chow hall. They were to dig at night. Tidwell and another guard told them to dig the holes four feet deep and, quote, as long as a boy. Florida School for Boys was fucking hell on earth. Imagine if your child was sent to a place like this, or if you were. How much rage would you feel? How much would spending years at a place like this harden your heart? During your developmental years especially. This place was worse than the Elan School, if you remember that topic. The so-called school slash torture chamber, the troubled teen industry. We sucked on back in episode 234. This was where Paul John Knowles would spend his most formative years. And this is why Paul's brother Clifton would later state that he felt like the state of Florida had a large hand in turning his brother into a killer. Each time after he was released from this hellhole, he'd head back to Jacksonville, meet up with old friends, maybe crash a bit with his family again until he got, you know, caught again. He'd resume his routine of joyriding and burglary until Johnny Law would nab him. He also began to study up on criminality, didn't dream of reforming, uh, early on, you know, he realized that uh, like being a criminal was just part of his identity, or at least he chose that. He just wanted to get better at it. He devoured books about John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, Babyface Nelson. We've covered Dillinger and uh, Bonnie, Clyde, uh, Bonnie and Clyde before. Uh, Nelson also showed up in a topic or two. He studied up on these outlaws and other outlaws who took America and its lawmen by storm, by brute force, over the top levels of violence. He didn't care for criminals like Al Capone, uh, thought their shit was too tame. He admired people who were brazenly violent. He was a boy, a young man who truly wanted to set the world on fire and watch it all burn to the ground. Many years later, after his final arrest, a prison psychiatrist asked him what the worst thing that ever happened to him was. He said it was simply being born. That was the worst thing. When asked if he had it to do all over again, what would he do? He matter-of-factly said, I wouldn't. When asked what was the best thing that had ever happened to him, he simply said, Nothing. As you'll see when it comes to his later killings, while some serial killers hate women maybe killing their mothers over and over again or an ex who they felt betrayed them or burned them, while some serial killers maybe hate men perhaps killing their father over and over again, BJK fucking hated everybody. Everything. Didn't give a fuck about humanity in general. His crimes wouldn't be primarily sexually motivated. He didn't have a type, no real MO, just an attitude with few exceptions of fuck everyone. As a teen, his actual violence may have begun with women. Kathy Hardy, whose brother was friends with Paul, remembered that it could be terrifying. If he liked a girl and she rejected him, it meant that girl was getting blowback. At the very least, yelled at, mocked, and probably hit. He'd punch a woman without even thinking about it, she said. Even when boyfriends or brothers of these girls came after him, Paul didn't change his ways. He'd hit those guys too. He never hurt Kathy, though. She said she figured out how to stay on his good side. 
just compliment him a bunch, compliment him about how bad he was. She realized he loved being told that he was a bad guy. She said he'd tell her that one day he was going to be this big, famous bad guy, and she asked for his autograph, and he fucking loved it. In March 1965, when Paul was 19, a policeman stopped him while he was driving a stolen car. Paul grabbed the officer's gun, tore it away from him, and forced that guy into his vehicle. Could have killed him, maybe even thought about killing him, but he didn't. He released him two hours later unharmed and then might have quickly regretted doing so. Because Paul was apprehended shortly thereafter, charged and convicted of kidnapping and sentenced to one to five years in the state prison. Prison was bad for people not used to being incarcerated. For Paul, wasn't any worse than the Florida School for Boys. Maybe a little better. The food was terrible, right? The living conditions hot and humid, didn't exactly smell like perfume, uh, but there was sex to pass the time. Paul would later uh, relay that uh, with only other men as outlets for his sexual frustration, Knowles had sex with men and with them often during his prison stints. He would later blame his sexual conditioning in prison for finding it difficult to achieve orgasms with female partners later on. During his time in the Florida prison system, which would span nearly nine years in total, Knowles would be a, a committed loner. You know, alone when he wasn't uh, fucking other prisoners or, or being fucked, I guess. But hard to do that alone, but mostly alone. Uh, one prison official later described him as antisocial, profiting neither from experience nor punishment. Uh, he was never described as stupid. Records show that he scored 125 on an intelligence test, you know, IQ test, which was above average for the population at large. Also, while being antisocial, didn't just stare into space in his cell and twiddle his thumbs when he wasn't fucking. He liked to read. Since he wasn't allowed to read true crime books about his uh, favorite outlaws in prison, he ended up getting into a, a lot of occult literature, became real interested in astrology. He'd read his daily horoscope, daily, and took that shit seriously. It affected his mood, positive prediction made him giddy, apparently, while a negative prediction made him keep to himself. I uh, did not expect to find that in this episode. Too bad he wasn't able to run into former suck subject Terry Hoffman before he began his later murder spree. Could have joined her Texas-based cult of conscious development and channeled all that bad boy energy into battling black lords on the astral plane. PJK could have murdered so many black lords, level up his vibrational energy or, or whatever instead of ending up in prison. He, he could have been like a ninth degree black lord black belt or something, you know, covered in spiritual protection, jewelry and charms and stuff. Uh, PJK also got pretty good at reading tarot cards and uh, again, did not expect that. Two years and eight months after he went to prison in November of 1967, he'd be out on parole. While on parole, the now 21-year-old bad boy meets bad girl. Well, I don't know. She might be a good girl, I guess. Uh, Jackie Knight. Uh, her husband at the time introduced him. Uh, weird. Soon he was visiting the Knights regularly and seemed to be good with their uh, three children, taking them to local fairs and winning them prizes when he wasn't trying to maybe, you know, fuck mom behind dad's back. Behind dad's back. Speculating here about the attempted fucking. But they will uh, uh, become romantic later, and this just this all just seems weird to me. Why? Why would you bring a dude home from prison to meet your wife? <laughs> uh, a single dude, maybe unless maybe unless the two of them were hooking up. I don't know. I just can't imagine. Uh, I just can't imagine doing that. I mean, I guess it's better than if, than if she brought him home, right? That would be more uncomfortable. If like your you know your husband or wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, brought somebody home, uh, especially of the sex they were attracted to. You know, young, good-looking, recently released inmate. I can't imagine uh, Lindsay letting me get away with that. Hey, babe, I want you to meet Mariella. She's a 20-year-old uh, smoke show. Who's free, single, probably horny since she's been locked up. Uh, anywho, uh, I've been writing her letters in prison for funsies the uh, past few months, and she just seemed so fucking cool, I invited her over. 
I was thinking she could crash in the guest room for a few nights, maybe join us for drinks, dinner on a date night tomorrow, maybe see how things go, maybe have a slumber party, or uh, I don't know. Maybe I could fuck her quietly in the shower, uh, like the warden might catch us at any moment. I don't know, I'm just, <laughs> just throwing out options for our new friend. Uh, April of 1968, Duval County Police caught Knowles attempting to break in and entering, which sent him straight back to the Florida State Prison in Rayford uh, to complete his sentence. So, I don't know. I wonder if Jackie's husband was uh, upset about this or you know, glad to see him go after bringing him over. Because uh, he, he will uh, write Jackie from prison. He'll be released just over two years later, May 10th, 1970, with, the parole off, uh, with as a parole officer later put it, excuse me, $25 in his pocket, a new suit, and no responsibilities. But he did have a girlfriend, Jackie Knight. Same lady, right? He's uh, hanging out with uh, last time he was free. <laughs> uh, she'd written uh, to him all throughout his second stint in prison, and a romance had blossomed. If it hadn't already blossomed before. And as soon as he left prison, the two were married. But their relationship wouldn't last more than a few months. Knowles could not find employment or claimed he couldn't. So he was soon back to hanging out with his drinking buddies and committing petty crimes. Alarmed. I don't know why she'd be alarmed. Feels like uh, she should have seen this coming. Jackie took the children and moved to Macon, Georgia, where she had their marriage annulled. A few months later, Paul was back in prison. Shocking. September 15th, 1971, Knowles was convicted of breaking and entering with intent to commit a felony and sentenced to three years now. And for reasons I do not understand, he got off very easy, especially for someone with a previous record. 1971, the maximum penalty for the same offense was 15 years. And the Knowles got furlough privileges after just one year. Maybe Casanova smooth-talked the judge, used that Casanova charm to get things reduced. Hey, baby. I'm in your honor. Sorry. <laughs> so hard to be formal with such a sexy woman like you. I just, no disrespect. I can just tell, uh, I can just tell even while you wear a robe that you have, oh man, a body under there that would make Farrah Fawcett weep with jealousy. I'll, I'll accept any sentence you throw my way with no attitude. I'm just, I'm just overjoyed to share a few moments in the same room with a real-life Venus, as beautiful as she is powerful and just. I also couldn't help but noticing that, that you got your hair cut since I saw you last time. Uh, it looks it looks fantastic. Those feathered bangs, just they bring out your dreamy eyes. and Just, uh, oh, let the light, you know, just hit those high cheekbones. <laughs> my Lord, my rest was worth it. I'm not glad I committed crime, but I'm glad I got to end up in front of this little taste of heaven. Angels have nothing on you. The honor here today, your honor, is all mine. And then maybe does like a little curtsy. I don't know. Uh, after his light sentence. One day while out on furlough, he runs off. And the police catch up with him just a few weeks later, December 6, 1972. He fights him like a cornered wildcat, punching one officer and nearly taking another down before they overpower him and return him to Rayford. No info out there on where they found him. While incarcerated this time, the now 26-year-old begins corresponding with a California woman named Angela Kovic. He'd found her name in a sweet, awesome magazine called American Astrology. Fuck yeah, bro. Nice. Find a lady also into horoscopes. God, too bad he couldn't have used his daily horoscopes to avoid getting caught by police and sent back to prison, though. Probably would have been nicer to meet that lady on the outside. Maybe maybe he skipped a day of his horoscopes. So, let's see, let's see, let's see. Uh, what, what was my horoscope yesterday before the fuzz arrested me? Uh, where are you, Sagittarius? Oh, oh, yes, here we are. Hello, Sagittarius. Today you're in the mood to wander as the moon in your gregarious third house ping sociable Venus and your communal 11th. With Mercury officially out of retrograde and zipping ahead in Virgo, today is a day to stay inside and focus on your spiritual development. Or perhaps just watch some television or nap and stuff. 
Soon Mercury will align with metamorphic Pluto, the planet responsible for deep and sustained change. But until then, the cops will be looking everywhere for you. Seriously, stay inside. Keep the blinds closed. Take a breather. Eat some snacks. Leave town somewhere around midnight. Quietly. And never come back. Stay golden, pony boy. Now And then he's all like, oh, fuck, man. Oh, shit. Why didn't I read my always specific and accurate, consistently super helpful horoscope? Oh, goddamn, man. Anyway, back to the document of reality now. He's back in prison. He meets fellow occult lover, Angela Kovic. Oh, sweet, sweet Angela. Angela's mother was a locally renowned psychic. So maybe not so renowned if you have to add the qualifier of local to it. Uh, uh, Angela loved the same things that Paul did, reading horoscopes, tarot cards, getting fucked by dudes in prison, uh, that kind of stuff. Maybe not the last part. Angela was 26 and a recently divorced cocktail waitress from San Francisco. She responded to each letter that Paul wrote enthusiastically, beginning with, Hi, Mad Dog Knowles. And that made him happy. Another woman telling him how bad he was, giving him a cool nickname and shit. You know, just like Machine Gun Kelly. Or he probably gave himself that Mad Dog Knowles nickname. And she accepted it. Uh, he called her my Yiddish angel and decorated each letter with crayon drawings, as a true romantic does. Of astral symbols, flowers, devils with initials PJ between their horns, not alarming. The fact that he was in prison didn't phase her. She seems, uh, seemed like she was a real genius. Real power couple in the making here. Her former husband was serving time in a California prison. And before long, these two dinglings had fallen in love. Angela would travel across the country to visit him at Rayford in September of 1973. And there, their meeting went so well that he proposed marriage. She accepted, even hired a Florida lawyer, Sheldon Yavitz. Oh, we'll learn a lot more about that goofball later. Uh, to try and get Paul an early parole so he could join her in California. Now with an incentive to be on his best behavior, Knowles gets his GED, starts taking some college courses. Uh, when he went before the parole commission, he said he planned to go to California where Angela had gotten him a job painting signs, which doesn't sound like a real job, but I guess people do have to paint signs. Paul told Angela that he'd been angry and aimless before, but now that she'd helped him abandon his old ways and turn a new leaf, he was ready to be a good man. So, someone, someone worthy of marrying. And he gets an early parole. Florida prison officials would later say they granted him this parole for two reasons. One, he was due for release in just a year uh, anyway. And two, that's what their horoscopes told him to do. No, California officials had agreed to supervise him. Uh, they also privately figured that uh, going to California would be better for him than staying in Jacksonville where he'd just, you know, undoubtedly fall back in with the old friends, you know, fall back into his bad habits. Upon his release, May 14th, 1974, Knowles immediately flies to San Francisco. Angela bought him a ticket. Oh, he is fucking ready. But then when he arrives at Angela's home, the woman who had just recently promised to love him for the rest of his life seemed cold and distant. She had cold feet. She changed her mind. Gosh, dang. Oh, my heck, this is not good. Why'd she do that? While Paul was being released, a psychic she had visited told her that a dangerous man was now entering her life. Fuck, the world of the occult had just burned him. Damn it. I wonder what his daily horoscope was, you know, was that day. Hey, Sagittarius. Bad news, I'm afraid. You're going to want to sit down for this. The woman you just flew across the country for immediately after being released from prison, well, she's not who you thought she was. You see, the sun is in Libra and Jupiter, your ruling planet, and it's sliding back into Pisces with combative Mars, Mars turning retrograde in Gemini. And the time is not right for a new romance. 
while the Sun, mental Mercury, and outgoing Venus are all snoozing in Scorpio, and your restful 12th house, the Moon's in Aquarius, and your social 3rd house, and well, that wishy-washy bitch tricked you. She doesn't want to marry you anymore. Now she's going to blame it on a psychic reading, but really, she just started fucking her ex-husband again. He's got that sweet, sweet magic dick, I'm afraid. And then he just fucking crumples it up. He's, oh, God, God damn it. Guess I'm going to be a bad boy forever now. That's what's in the stars for me. Uh, Paul would stay in California for less than a week. Sleeping at Angela's mother's place each night. Uh, Knowles will later claim to have started killing that same day. Uh, the same day that Angela told him that the marriage was off. He said he murdered three people in the streets of San Francisco that night. But that claim has never been verified. Based on what he's going to do, though, that was verified, I don't doubt that it's possible. Before he left town, not only did he uh, did Angela tell him that she had changed her mind about getting married, she also decided to reconcile with her former husband, as, as the horoscope said. I <laughs> uh, wonder if she ever saw a psychic at all. Or if that was just some bullshit she made up to get Paul to go away when she came to her senses and realized this dude was going to be nothing but trouble. But then, you know, went back to a guy who sounds like he might have been in a lot of trouble. I don't know. Paul was hurt by all of this. He was furious when they corresponded. When she visited him in prison, she made him feel so powerful and desired, made him feel like a celebrity. Was feeling like a celebrity so important to him because he'd uh, felt like nothing at the Florida School for Boys? Because he'd been treated like dirt for most of his life? Because he'd watched other boys disappear and leave nothing behind? Hmm. Well, now that feeling was gone. Two days after she ended their engagement, Paul returned to Jacksonville, where uh, Paul being Paul, classic PGK, pulled a knife on a bartender during a bar fight just a few weeks after making it back to town. PJK. Do his initials remind anyone else of PB&J? Peanut butter and jelly? No? I'm going to start calling him that a bunch uh, going forward. PB&J should have seen his knife fight coming, right? What's the point of these horoscopes if they don't help you out in situations like this? Uh, He'd be arrested and taken to jail straight to his old haunt, Rayford, on July 26, 1974. PB&J, slippery like some jelly, picks a lock on his prison cell and escapes into the night. That same night, Paul commits his first murder. First murder, uh, authorities are confident he committed. Before we get into the murder portion of this timeline, uh, seems like the best spot for our mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled the tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, is that there's always a catch. 
So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for sticking around, Meat Sack. Now we're going to return to July 26, 1974, when PBJ, PBNJ, PJK, Casanova Killer, Polly, Polly John, uh, begins his murder spree in Jacksonville Beach. PB&J knew he needed to get away fast, which required money and a vehicle, and he had neither. So that meant he had to steal. He also didn't want a witness to put him back in prison, so to increase the odds he wouldn't be incarcerated again, he needed to kill. Perhaps. Perhaps he just wanted to. Maybe he decided now is the time to kick off his plan of becoming some version of Babyface Nelson or John Dillinger or some other brazenly violent outlaw he admired. Or maybe this first death was accidental and something fucking changed in him. Uh, whatever the reason, he breaks into the home of a 65-year-old retired school teacher named Alice Curtis living in Jacksonville Beach. Not known whether he physically broke into the home or got in using a ruse, he'd used both methods in the months to come. If he physically broke in, it would have uh, involved either picking a lock or just getting lucky with an unlocked door. There were no signs of a break-in. Casanova killer, you know, could have charmed his way in. Once inside, Paul ties Alice up and gags her. And then while Paul ransacks, ransacks her house for money, uh, Alice chokes to death. Her dentures had been dislodged by the gag Paul put around her throat, forced down her throat, too fucking tight, PB&J. And by the time he went back to check on her, according to him, you know, she was dead. Now he's staring at the uh, body of his first victim and perhaps not an intentional kill. People who knew him would later speculate this changed him. That Alice was his first victim and now he crossed a new line that he could never uncross. Maybe one that he didn't want to uncross once he crossed it. 
right? For his whole life, he'd been dominated by an abusive father, judges, juries, jailers, Florida school for boys, goons. Now he realizes that he uh, has it in him to totally dominate someone else, to end them if he wants. Instead of leaving town as he had intended to uh, with Alice's things, Noel simply drives around Jacksonville in Alice's white Dodge Dart, like a genius, finds some friends and hides out with them. Now with a taste for blood, less than a week later, he kills again. August 1st, 1974, Elizabeth Anderson and her 13-year-old daughter leave their home in Jacksonville's Pumpkin Hill area to visit a sick relative. Elizabeth uh, left her two younger girls, 11-year-old Lillian, 7-year-old Milette, at home. She didn't love doing that, but also they weren't supposed to be alone for more than an hour. Their dad, Jack, was going to be coming home soon. A real-life monster, unfortunately, would just barely beat him to his girls. So fucking sad. Shortly before Jack was due home at 7, Elizabeth called home to check on the girls, and they assured her that everything was fine. Then just a few minutes later, Paul John Knowles abandons Alice Curtis's car or starts to abandon it on a quiet residential street near the Anderson's home. Right While he's just about to dump this car, he notices the Anderson girls watching him curiously, recognizes them, which meant that they very likely recognized him. In his mind, he knew these girls. Their mom, Elizabeth, was a friend of Bonnie, Paul's mom. Convinced that they were going to tell his parents or her parents, you know, uh, that they'd seen him, Knowles decides to kill him. He coaxes Lillian and Milette into Alice's car, drives them to a remote location, strangles them both, and dumps their bodies into a swamp. Neither girl, according to PB&J, were sexually assaulted. When Jack arrives home at 7.20 p.m., delayed by a problem with his boat, a delay that will undoubtedly haunt him for the rest of his life, both his girls are gone. Immediately, Elizabeth and Jack are positive the girls have been kidnapped. They knew their daughters would have uh, never gone off on their own. Jack calls the police, who quickly began to conduct a 140-square-mile search of northeastern Duval County, but nothing turns up. Elizabeth and Jack are sick with worry. Early into the search, they uh, worry because even if the girls are still alive, Lillian has a serious thyroid condition, and Milet has asthma and a weak heart. Both rely on medication to live. Sadly, they won't need it because they were both dead within an hour of their disappearance. Family wouldn't get closure for months, not until January of 1975, when authorities listened to Knowles' description of this crime on tapes he recorded to document his kills. Tapes he made specifically, so he would become infamous. After hearing Paul's confession, the police searched all the swamps in the area, but the girls' remains were never found. Knowles now feels like he has to get out of town. The day after the girls disappear, after he kills them, on August 2nd, 1974, he decides to drive to Macon, Georgia, a four-hour drive north to hide out with his old ex, Jackie Knight. These two fucking ding-dongs kept in touch. Jackie may not have uh, wanted to marry Knowles, but some sort of attraction clearly remained. Maybe she had a, a fetish for flaccid wieners. What is big deal with flaccid wieners? Maybe she liked to wrestle. Maybe you don't kink shame. You never know when Chikatilo could still show up after all these years. Uh, on his way to making low on cash, PB&J breaks into the Atlantic Beach home of 49-year-old Marjorie Howie. Atlantic Beach, essentially an eastern suburb of Jacksonville. Uh, Paul strangles her with one of her nylon stockings. He seems to have, after that accidental first strangulation, developed a taste for this kind of killing. Again, it's not clear if he broke in or if she, for whatever reason, invited him in. Also, again, like with his you know, previous victims, doesn't seem as if he uh, sexually assaulted her. When he left, he took cash and valuables, including a TV set that he proudly then gave to Jackie when he arrived to Macon. And then before he makes it to Macon, meets and kills a fifth victim. Dude is in a full-blown blood frenzy. Sometime in early August, the date's still unknown, Knowles meets young Ima Jean Sa- Sanders, only 13. Ima was strong-willed and independent, after her parents' divorce in 1968, six years earlier, she went to live with her dad in Beaumont, but then ran away frequently. Got so bad that her dad wouldn't even tell authorities when she ran away. He knew she'd turn up sooner or later. 
In July of 1974, Ahmed hopped a bus to Warner Robins, Georgia, a city of around 80,000, about 10 miles south of Macon, where her mom, Betty, and stepdad lived. When she got there, she called Betty from the bus station, asked if someone could pick her up. Ahmed Jean's four-year-old sister, Sharon, was thrilled to see her. Six months earlier, Sharon's other sister, Charlotte, had fallen off the family's houseboat and drowned. Sharon had watched it happen. Now she clung to her older sister for protection. On August 1st, Betty left the family mobile home for a few hours, asked Ima to babysit. But soon after her mother left, a group of Ima's older friends pulled up in a van. They were going to party. Not wanting to miss out on a good time, Ima told her sister to go inside and lock the doors. Sharon peeked out of the window as the van disappeared to be the last time she saw her sister. It'd be the last time anyone in the family saw her alive. Not far from Warner Robins, Knowles would pick up a teenage hitchhiker who he would say her name was Alma. It would, of course, be Ima. After taking her to a wooded area, now Paul commits his first confessed sexual crime. He confessed on those tapes he recorded to document his dirty deeds, that he raped and strangled her, then left her body between some trees. Two weeks later, he returned to the location to see that some animals had dragged most of her corpse away. During that time, Ima's jawbone had been detached from her skull. Knowles buried the small bone and then left. It would take investigators over 35 years to officially add Ima Sanders' murder to Knowles' list because in Paul's tapes, again, he called her the wrong name, called her Alma. By the last week of August, 1974, Knowles was once again running low on funds, and despite the TV and some other gifts, Jackie was hinting that he was uh, overstaying his welcome after he'd been staying with her for about three weeks now. So on August 23rd, Knowles heads to the little unincorporated community of Musella. Only about 100 people live in a rural Crawford County, Georgia, roughly 30 miles west of Macon. Uh, if I mispronounce Musella, uh, not many people are going to fucking know about it. <laughs> it's a very small area. Uh, he knocks on the door of 24-year-old Kathy Sue Woods Pierce, who is home alone with her three-year-old son, Joel. When she opens it, Knowles pushes his way in, demands money. Kathy tries to scream, which enrages him, so he rips the telephone loose from the wall, wraps the cord around her neck so tight it's practically buried in her flesh when investigators find her body. While little Joel looks on how fucking traumatizing, Knowles drags his young mother's now lifeless body onto the ba- or into the bathroom, leaves it on the floor, does not sexually assault the victim's remains, and makes off with whatever cash he can find. Also doesn't harm little Joel. Right? Maybe uh, maybe had a bit of conscience showing up in little moments here and there. Maybe just, uh, I don't know, maybe that was a, one of the few lines he didn't want to cross. Kathy's body will be discovered by the father of her boyfriend who calls police. While little Joel had seen everything, you know, he's too young, too traumatized to help with the investigation. After leaving Jackie's place, Knowles now heads north. He's now murdered six people in less than six weeks. What's his plan? I don't know that he had one, other than to try and not get caught for as long as possible. And to rack up a crime log big and dark enough to become infamous. He didn't seem to want to try and ever live a normal life again. He, uh, he'd never really led one. He wasn't hoping to cross an international border and, you know, begin a new life. No strategy to take on an assumed identity. Just two months later, he would tell a journalist, right, girlfriend for a week, Sandy Fox, that he would probably be dead within a year. Did Knowles want to die? Yeah, I think a part of him did. You know, leave a trail of pain until someone finally caught up with him and took him out. And then, you know, oh fucking well. September 3rd, this walking shit show arrives in Lima, Ohio. Should be pronounced Lima, since it is a Spanish word and since it is named after Lima, Peru. But you know, America, fuck it. Uh, Lima, over 650 miles north of Macon. Almost 900 miles north of Jacksonville. And it was doing a little better when PB&J rolled through than it is now. Uh, the uh, pretend setting of Glee has a, had around five, 55,000 people living there in the mid-70s. When they used to build a lot of trains there. And there was a lot of manufacturing that ended up getting shipped overseas. Only has around 35000 now. Whew, that's a big drop. Uh, on the night of September 3rd, Paul enters Scott's Inn, a local bar, strikes up a conversation with William Bates. 
a 32-year-old account executive for the Ohio Power Company, the bartender who knew Bates watched with mild interest as one of his regulars, you know, chatted it up with a tall drink of water, a tall young redhead. The two men left together, and then Bates would never be seen alive again. Uh, Mrs. Bates soon reported her husband missing. The detectives investigating his disappearance found an abandoned white Dodge Dart near Scott's Inn and traced it back to the deceased Alice Curtis. He was still driving her car. The discovery of a murder victim's vehicle obviously indicated there was a good chance that Bates was now dead. And he was. It's believed he uh, uh, left with Mr. Knowles under uh, romantic, you know, with romantic hopes. Uh, by the time he was reported missing, Knowles had already left Lima with Bates' money, credit cards, and a white Chevy Impala. Bates' strangled body, no evidence of sexual assault, uh, would be discovered several weeks later in some nearby woods. PB&J now heads west for California. After that, he drives based on credit card transactions uh, east to Missoula, Montana, and then south into Utah. So he probably drove right here uh, through Coeur d'Alene. On September 12th, uh, Knowles arrived in Ely, Nevada, a little mining town of about 4,000 in the east central part of the state. Uh, It actually has a really cool historic downtown built the dawn of the 20th century if you ever want to check it out. I love little towns like Ely. Uh, Bates' credit cards were now maxed out and Knowles needed more funds, so it was time to go hunting again. Somewhere in his travels, he picked up a gun. Since uh, it didn't show up on, you know, any credit card transactions, I'm, I'm guessing he stole it. Or, you know, perhaps his daily horoscope uh, may have, you know, led him to it. September 12th, 1974. Today's a great day, Sagittarius. Your lucky number is four today, and your lucky color is royal blue. Transformation will bring positive changes by bringing peace and joy to you. You've been focusing on your physical well-being, but now it's time to pay more attention to your mental health. And some relief from prolonged illness will arrive shortly. Also, there is a small shed behind the Conoco gas station right off the freeway in Billings by the westernmost exit. The door to the shed is unlocked and inside is a 38 revolver and several boxes of ammunition. Finally, Pluto is correcting its course and lumbering forward after a frustrating five-month retrograde and greater financial health should be now able to return. <laughs> oh, oh, hot damn! Man, that was oh, that's great. That was a great uh, daily horoscope. Oh, shit. Okay. Uh, PB&J used his new gun to overpower Emmett and Lois Johnson, a San Pedro couple, San Pedro, uh, California. Uh, Emmett was 62. Lois uh, was 59. They were vacationing in their camper together at the campground on the edge of town. He tied them both up, shot each behind their left ear execution style, and then escaped with their cash and credit cards. The bodies of Emmett and Lois wouldn't be discovered until September 18th, and by that time, Knowles was long gone. Since the FBI wasn't tracking the credit card transactions to a possible serial killer yet, because his style of killing keeps changing, there's no consistency with age or gender of victims, or even murder style, this murder not connected to PB&J until the discovery of his confession tapes. So Paul just keeps on moving is not on national law enforcement's radar. A couple days later, September 21st, 1974, Knowles is now driving through Seguin, Texas, over 1,500 miles away. Dude really put some miles between himself and his most recent murders. In Seguin, around 30,000 people, less than 30 miles from the edge of San Antonio, PB&J spots Charlene Hicks, 42-year-old widow, uh, standing outside a rest stop on the side of Interstate 10. Charlene was on her way to a chili cooking contest, how very Texas, in San Marcos, and had simply stopped to take a little break in her drive. Either way, Charlene, uh, um, or I'm sorry, she was uh, either doing that to, on, on her way to a chili cooking contest, uh, or uh, perhaps her car had broken down, was the other part of that either way. 
Um, either way, Charlene would not make it to San Marcos. When her family contract contacted the Guadalupe County Sheriff's Department after she doesn't turn up, they kick off a search, quickly find her car at the rest stop. Since the uh, car was not broken down, uh, so, you know, probably was heading to a chili contest, uh, her family greatly worried about her safety as our law enforcement. Uh, she was not safe. She was dead. A few details about her death coming up in just a moment. Knowles appears to have met his next victim before her remains were found, Beautician Ann Dawson, September 23rd, 1974, in Birmingham, Alabama. Unclear as to whether he abducted her or if she traveled with him willingly. If she got charmed by Casanova. But she did travel with him for almost a week, and she paid all the bills while they were traveling together. Witnesses would later confirm that the two were seen traveling together. Uh, did not appear that she was in obvious distress. Knowles claimed in his tapes that he killed this poor lady uh, September 29th, 1974, then dumped her body into the Mississippi River, and he uh, said he killed her because he just got bored with her. Or maybe she got tired of him freeloading off of her. Uh, not sure how he killed her, sources just say she was murdered. I'm guessing strangulation, but that is just a guess. While traveling, they did have a sexual relationship, according to Knowles. Not sure if it was consensual, as he claimed, or if she was raped. Her body, uh, you know, never recovered. Backing up just a little, Charlene's body would be recovered two days after Paul met Anne on September 25th. Deputy found her nude body in some brush near a lonely stretch of Texas highway. She had definitely uh, been raped and strangled to death, and her skin was torn in several places after Knowles had dragged her body through the barbed wire fence that separated the brush area from the highway. For the next few weeks, Knowles then traveled through Oklahoma, Missouri, Iowa, and Minnesota. Didn't leave any additional bodies behind that we know of. Knowles now drives all over the fucking place. Credit card receipts would show that during Paul's five-month-long murder spree, he made more than 100 stops in at least 40 states. I mean, he made it to almost all the continental states. And a few weeks after tossing Ann's body in the river, on October 16th, Knowles walked up to a home in Marlboro, Connecticut, a little town of just over 5,000 people outside of Hartford, uh, and knocked on the door. 16-year-old Don Wine, who was home alone, answered. Knowles quickly forced his way inside, tied her up, and raped her. Don's mother, 35-year-old Karen Wine, came home shortly after. Knowles now subjected her to the same torture, his 12th and 13th victims. PB&J getting rapier and rapier as time goes on, now strangled them both with silk stockings and left, taking money, a tape recorder, and some records from Don's music collection. He'd give those records to Jackie Knight's children when he visited uh, her again. She would later claim that she had no idea anything uh, you know, bad was going on with Paul. When he'd swing through town, she felt so comfortable with him that she'd let him uh, babysit her kids while she ran errands. What a weird fucking babysitter for those kids to think about having later. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, Paul was kind of a weird babysitter. Uh, I mean, sometimes he was cool. Like, you know, even he'd let us like stay up late. But other times, you know, he'd, he'd creep us out. Like when he'd ask if, uh, you know, like if we thought it'd be uh, funny to, um, to like shoot the pizza guy in the face when he uh, showed up at the door. Or, or if we, or he thought, you know, that um, it'd be funny if, uh, if he ransacked our neighbor's house and killed everyone inside, you know, before I left, left town. I thought that was weird at the time. Uh, three days after leaving Connecticut, Knowles makes another deadly stop. Uh, he arrived in Woodford, Virginia on October 19th. There he forced or persuaded 53-year-old Doris Hovey to let him into the home, her home, told her that all he wanted was a gun. And then as soon as he got it, he'd be on his way. Uh, not sure what happened to his previous gun. Apparently, Doris believed him about wanting the gun, or maybe just wanted to believe him and was just fucking scared out of her mind. She led the way into the study, retrieved her husband's rifle. As soon as he loaded it, he pointed it at her and shot her in the head. Before leaving, he wiped his uh, prints off the rifle, left it uh, beside her corpse. So I guess uh, he didn't need a gun. Just wanted to kill her. Also, before leaving, he took some cash, other valuables, no sexual nature to this crime. Just needed some more stuff to keep running. Was willing to kill whoever to get it. 
As he now drove to Florida, Knowles knew that he'd taken enough lives to guarantee going down into the history books. Now he needed someone to know what he'd done. Paradoxically, he needed someone who would not turn him in when uh, finding out what he had done. In Key West, Florida, he picked up a pair of young hitchhikers, volunteered to drive them to Miami. He'd later tell law enforcement officers how he planned to kill them, but, uh, you know, hadn't driven very far before a police officer stopped him for a traffic violation. Officer let him go with a warning, not realizing he was driving yet another stolen car. Now, Knowles gets lucky here. He also knew that there was no way now he could commit uh, murder. Couldn't kill this couple because the police officer had seen him with them. So after dropping his pastors off in Miami, he now goes to see his uh, lawyer, Sheldon Yavitz, that attorney we met earlier that got him the uh, early parole and gave him a set of audio tapes and made a pretty dark declaration. He said, uh, I have something to tell you. Brace yourself. I'm a mass murderer. Despite having a clientele of professional criminals, uh, Sheldon apparently was not prepared for this. And, and, and let's meet Sheldon here. Not your typical defense attorney. This guy is truly like a real-life Saul from Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, except not funny. Uh, by 1974, his law practice was booming. His clients included Cuban extortionists who attacked their victims with hand grenades, a gang of drug smugglers that delivered to uh, customers using Federal Express, uh, a man who liked to rob adult bookstores. He did not give a fuck what his clients did at all. Also didn't seem to care about the law. Interesting quality for an attorney. Uh, he was cool with getting paid in whatever, like precious and clearly illegal stones from a jewel thief or a Cobra sports car from a ring of burglars. A uh, former drug dealer worked for him as a secretary. This character was very good at getting his clients off on technicalities. That was his specialty. His favorite being improper search and seizure. Sheldon uh, is not, in my opinion, a likable fucking guy on any level. He didn't assume his clients were innocent when working for them. He uh, worked almost exclusively for clients that he knew were guilty and seemed to enjoy the challenge of getting them off. You know, even if they were rapists, murderers, did not matter. Some people seem to, uh, seem to think he liked working with criminals because he was one. Decades after his involvement with Knowles, he'll get arrested in the bar of the Booby Trap Lounge, home of stylish nude entertainment in uh, Pompano Beach, Florida, and charged with tax fraud. Knowles will soon uh, serve 48, days, 48 days, days in jail for initially refusing to turn over evidence that Knowles has given him, uh, he'll get a contempt of court charge. He was for nearly 20 years the premier drug lawyer for Southern Florida, which says a lot. Uh, then he resigned from the Florida bar before they had a chance to disbar him, which they were going to do. Knowles had met this uh, fellow fucking deviant, right, through Angela Kovic, that wealthy California woman who was, uh, you know, going to get him off on parole early so she could marry him, but then changed her mind. She'd hired Sheldon. And, uh, you know, he accomplished what she set out for and now they have a relationship and that's why he shows up with, uh, to Sheldon now. The tapes Knowles gave Sheldon, uh, this day revealed that he had murdered 14 people over the previous four months. Knowles called his crimes, quote, successes and wanted Yavitz to make sure that the world would know about them after his death so he could become, quote, as famous as Bonnie and Clyde. Yavitz later said in an interview, morally I should have called the police, but you know, fucking money! No. Uh, he said, but ethically, legally, I was bound to protect my client or be disbarred. And if he was disbarred back then, then he wouldn't be able to keep making millions, I'm guessing, under the table illegally. Getting paid, you know, big lumps of fucking unmarked bills from, uh, you know, drug cartels and jewel thieves and shit. Not only speculating, but ah, come on. Not only did PB&J want Yavitz to make sure that the press and the public knew about his murders after his death so he could become famous or infamous. Also insisted he wanted to be shot down in a blaze of glory. Said that he had committed murders in several death penalty states, knew his days were numbered, and would prefer to be shot down, uh, you know, resisting arrest, than rather than uh, wait out the, the electric chair or whatever. Yavitz agreed to keep the tapes for him. 
said he wouldn't call the police or alert any kind of law enforcement. And then PB&J, the self-proclaimed success story, as he creepily told Sheldon, headed back to Jackie Knight's house in Macon. While there, it's possible that he killed Edward Hilliard and Debbie uh, Debbie Griffin, not Debbie Gibson, which is what my mind tried to say, not the pop star, a pair of teenage hitchhikers who had been traveling from their hometown of Gainesville, Florida to Love Valley, North Carolina. Hilliard's body would be found just outside Macon on November 2nd, body punctured by five bullets. Debbie Griffin remains missing. Searchers did find her purse, keys, and some articles of clothing. Their murders, uh, you know, if he committed them, would take his eventual body count from 18 to 20. Knowles would never take credit for these murders, though. Investigators would speculate, though, that he did kill them to make up for not being able to care that kill that pair of hitchhikers he wanted to kill uh, but ended up releasing near Miami. November 7th, 1974, Knowles now for sure kills again. Less than three weeks after his last certain victim, 43-year-old Ellen Carr returned to her home in Midgeville, Georgia. Around 20,000 people live in a half hour's drive from Macon. Her day started out as just uh, another morning after a long night shift at the hospital where Ellen worked as a nurse. Only thing she had in her mind was a good night's sleep, but that would quickly change. She entered her home to find that, as one investigator would later put it, the place looked as if it had been attacked by an animal. And this is very bad. Smashed mirrors, littered shards of glass across the carpet, sofas and chairs were ripped open, spilling their stuffing onto the floor. Bookshelves were upended, books littering the rooms like, like the rooms like a trash. And Ellen's 45-year-old husband, Carswell, and her 15-year-old daughter, Mandy, are nowhere to be found. What a fucking nightmare. Also, just real quick, Carswell Carr. His parents felt the need to have Carr in his uh, first name as well. Okay. Uh, heart pounding Ellen ran from room to room calling her family members by name and then a few minutes later she ran out of the house screaming hysterically she'd found Carswell's nude corpse lying face down on the couple's bed his hands bound behind his back he had been stabbed 27 fucking times with a pair of scissors with enough force to have the tips of the scissors broken off but the stabs hadn't killed him medical examiners were later determined that he died of a heart attack probably brought on by the torture Local detective James Josie later said, I've worked a lot of murders, but that was the bloodiest crime scene I've ever seen. Down the hall from her father, the body of 15-year-old Mandy lays face down in her room, one nylon stocking tied tightly around her neck, another shoved down her throat. She appeared to have been sexually assaulted after death, but no semen was present. Medical examiner would later estimate that the pair had been killed sometime between 11.30 the previous night, 3 a.m. that morning. Police then soon found that several things were missing from the house. Carswell's briefcase, shaving kit, credit cards, uh, cash, identification, uh, most of his clothing, plastic watch, digital clock, radio, also missing from Mandy's room. Uh, While again, more and more of these crimes now of a sexual nature, it still seemed like PB&J's primary motivation was money. Had to keep funding his murder so I can be infamous crime spree. Investigators initially believed that two people had committed the murders, given the extensive damage to the house and the fact that two victims had been overpowered. There were no fingerprints on the scissors that had been used to stab Carswell, nor was there a single usable print in the house. He's taking care to make sure he's not caught. He also, again, keeps changing his MO, stabs the dad with scissors so many times, that was new, uh, shoves a, a nylon, you know, down a rape victim's throat, that's new. As far as we know, he'd never attempted necrophilia before. I wonder, was all this done to help throw investigators off his trail? Or, and this is what I think in my gut is the truth, uh, as he, uh, you know, is he just trying new things because why the fuck not? Nothing's off limits morally for this guy, right? I think he did a lot of what he did based on what he just felt like doing in the moment. If he was attracted to a victim, 
Uh, he tried to rape him. If he wasn't, he didn't. Maybe Carswell reminded him of his dad or someone at the Florida school for boys, so he stabbed the fuck out of him. Or maybe he just wondered what it would feel like to stab someone that many times. Maybe with Mandy, he just wanted to know, uh, you know, what it would feel like to stuff nylons down her throat. Or maybe he was just following the advice this entire time of some really fucked up, you know, daily horoscopes. November 7th, 1974. With the moon's move into your solar third house for a stay of over two days, dear Sagittarius, it's a time of more movement, mental engagement, and variety. You're enjoying more clarity in your life, especially with longer time goals, communications, and learning. And it's a good time now to shake things up. Today, maybe grab some scissors instead of strangulation. And really let yourself go and experiment. Don't be afraid to get messy. Also, work on nagging money concerns by assessing where you can tighten the belt to curb unnecessary spending. It's time to create and then stick to a budget. It's not as punishing as your expansive self might imagine. And uh, I know that's pretty fucked up. I know that's pretty fucked up. It uh, does definitely lighten uh, all this horror up for me a bit, though, to do those uh, astrology readings. Uh, Police would quickly discover why PB&J targeted the car home. It was not random. The police would later learn that Carswell Carr had been seen the night before in the Pegasus, a nearby gay bar. The bartender said he noticed him talking to a tall young man with reddish hair, but couldn't recall if he left separately or together. And hearing that, I do feel extra bad for his wife, Ellen. Mandy was their uh, only daughter. In the matter of just a few hours, she learns that her husband, her only child, have both been murdered and may have also just found out that her husband was gay. And no longer alive to answer any questions like, uh, why didn't you tell me? You know, talk about a horrific combo of grief and being mindfucked. I hope for her sake she already knew that he had uh, sexual, you know, attractions towards men and they'd work something out. Helen Ray, a sales clerk at a department store in Macon, came forward uh, to say that after these murders, a young man had brought a, or bought, excuse me, a tape recorder and four blank tapes, paid for the items with a credit card that belonged to Carswell Carr. Seems like Knowles wanted to record some more uh, successes to send to Shady Sheldon. A call immediately went out for all police departments to be on the lookout for a tall, good-looking young dude with red hair and a Zapata-style mustache. While detectives searched for more clues, PB&J already miles away in Atlanta. In a bar there, wearing his victim's clothes, he flirts with a young female reporter and journalist named Sandy Fox, telling her that his name was Daryl Golden. Fucking Daryl Golden. Not a bad alias name. Stay golden, pony boy. He was a businessman from New Mexico, visiting Atlanta to oversee a court case involving a restaurant chain that his dad owned. Not a bad story. Sandy believed him. Clearly wasn't shaken up at all by what he'd just done. Sandy, a 45-year-old redhead this time, whose childhood might have made her more sympathetic towards Paul, uh, more than other people might be. And uh, shortly after her birth, June 30th, 1929, one or both of Sandy's parents, she never learned their identities, had abandoned her. She'd been raised in an orphanage until the age of four and a half, a cruel place where she'd been forced to wear different colored underwear to let everybody know she was a bedwetter. Her foster parents didn't understand her. They'd been alarmed instead of overjoyed for her when she learned to read quicker than their own kids. And then they forbade her from touching any more books in the home except for the Bible. Sandy's teenage years coincided with World War II. The Blitz, the whole keep calm ethos, the thing to do was to uh, tamp it down, transcend the trauma, channel the rage so deep that you hardly felt it. She showed an aptitude for painting, went to the Camberwell School of Art. 1949, she married Wally Fox, author of the cartoon strip Fluke. couple had three kids, what uh, one would die of SIDS. In the 1960s, she worked as a fashion editor for Vanity Fair and the Daily Sketch. And in the 1970s, as a feature writer for the Daily Express. She was climbing up the ranks. 
from small feature to big stories, covered the Yom Kippur War in the Middle East, 1973, and then landed in Atlanta on the night of November 7th, 1974. She'd spent that day in Washington on a fruitless quest to interview former Vice President Spiro Agnew, part of a one-month tryout with the National Enquirer. They were paying for her travel in a hotel. That meant uh, she actually needed to give them something, and it hadn't worked out so far. Had no plans for the evening, as was her habit when landing in a new city. She checked in with the local paper, the Atlanta Constitution here, to see if one of their reporters might show her around, but no one was available. PB&J would be free, though. What a lucky gal! Uh, Sandy alone decided to grab a few drinks at the hotel bar. She was uh, nervous at the prospect of drinking alone in the South. Atlanta was not London, where she was uh, from. You know, where the pubs in Soho were so familiar to her, they functioned as a second home. She wandered into the Holiday Inn bar, started drinking, which improved her mood. And uh, so did the handsome stranger, eyeing her from the other end of the bar. She would later remember that he looked like a cross between Robert Redford and Ryan O'Neill. Real easy on the eyes. He was over six feet tall, broad-shouldered, narrow-hipped, had the rugged facial features Sandy found attractive. She thought his suit and tie were conservative yet classy. The kind of thing a successful businessman might wear from the boardroom straight to the bar. And he was looking at her. As she herself wrote a few years later, years of pulling in pubs and clubs had taught her that despite being a bit broad in the beam and not exactly a raving beauty, she had a magnetism. A powerful one that drew men as if to a pile of iron fillings. And that is some weird shit to write about yourself, maybe. Also kind of extra weird to write about it uh, in the third person. Sure, Dan may have had greasier skin than the average bloke. And a bit of a belly and dark, swarthy features that projected a tone of menace to many. And yeah, maybe his larger than normal eyes could make him come across as a bit uh, mentally unstable. However, holy shit, that motherfucker was a puss magnet. He couldn't walk across a room without slipping a bit, nearly falling down thanks to the floor always being wet around him with puss juice flowing from every woman who gazed upon his manly visage. Little quote there from Dan's upcoming book about Dan. Current working title, Professor Puss Magnet. Hot slab of man meat, the Dan Cummins story as told by Dan Cummins. I don't know. Anyway, Sandy Dick Magnet Fox. Wore black pleated skirts, white silk blouses, black sparkly tight sweaters, black stockings, high heeled shoes. Broadcasting to the world, at least according to herself, who she's the one who gave this description. As she was single and ready to mingle with some young hot dick. Early to mid-twenties was her ideal range. That meant she could get some itches scratched, but keep her real focus on her work. They're not going to get too fucking clingy, Hail Lucifina. I got to say, confidence and honesty uh, is attractive. I bet she was putting out some sexual magnetism. I see you, Sandy. I see you. Uh, eventually, PB&J came over to Dandy Sandy and asked her to dance. She politely, maybe flirtatiously declined, saying she had to work. Sandy then quickly paid her tab, went to the local Enquirer office, wrapped a few things up, couldn't get the handsome stranger out of her head, though, so she went back to the bar, and there he was. His horoscope probably told him to wait for her. This time, she accepted his invitation when he asked again, and they uh, talked for hours, went out to dinner, and then went back to Sandy's hotel room. After using Carswell Carr's shaving kit to shave off his mustache, maybe Sandy didn't like it, maybe he's worried about being identified by law enforcement. Knowles gets into bed with Sandy. They kiss, they make outs, and they do not fuck, because he cannot get it up. He apologizes. Sandy reassures him that, uh, that it's, it's, things are fine. He just had too much to drink. Turning out the light, she cuddles up beside him and they drift off and she assumed that in the morning they would go their separate ways. But Daryl insisted on sticking around. He drove her to a scheduled interview instead of letting her take a cab. She made plans to fly to her next assignment in West Palm Beach that afternoon while he said he was attending court on his father's behalf. But then to her surprise, he approached her as she was leaving the hotel, saying that he'd already settled the matter. 
It was handled out of court. He had time to travel a bit if she was interested, which she was. She wanted more of that soft dick. Woo! Maybe you shouldn't say the last part. Uh, in total, they'd spend almost a week together. Sandy had no idea what the, uh, that the man she was sleeping with, kind of sleeping with, uh, would never be able to have sex with her due to impotence. The man who seemed so attentive, considerate, and protective was a fucking psychopath. He insisted on paying for everything and drove her everywhere she needed to go in a brand new white Chevy Impala car. His wardrobe made Daryl seem rich and cool to Sandy. She was smitten. When he volunteered to drive her to Miami, where he uh, said he had an appointment she accepted, their little love affair would continue for a little while longer. The pair left Atlanta November 9th down in Miami. They went clubbing. Sandy saw what a great dancer he was. When he started dancing, women turned around to watch fucking horoscopes and dancing. Who knew? Once in West Palm Beach, November 10th, PB&J drove Sandy to the local office of the paper she was trying out with. Drove her to the house of Florida Attorney General William Saxby so uh, she could conduct an interview. Waited for her in the car. At one point, he asked her if she'd ever written a book and if she would consider writing a book about him. Sandy was used to people trying to give her book ideas but wanted to humor her new boo. So she asked him, well, why would he make a good subject? And to her amazement, Daryl replied that he was going to be dead within a year. And he added that he expected to be killed for some stuff he'd done. While Sandy stared at him in alarm, Daryl told her that his attorney in Miami had been given some special tapes for safekeeping. He said their contents would be revealed after his death and that what was on those tapes would make world headlines. Half convinced he was joking, Sandy said that maybe he should see a psychiatrist. He smiled and said that he had seen a psychiatrist who told him, I had the perfect criminal mind. He's not joking. Sandy is, as you might expect, a bit creeped out. Also the impotence thing, now starting to wear a little thin. Their fling was supposed to be a fuck fest, not a cuddle party. So the two-part ways, two days later, November 11th, and Sandy is relieved. Knowles wanted to stay with her longer. She was worried about how to get rid of him. She introduced him to some important journalist friends who made him feel important by proxy, and then she had to uh, begin to avoid him for those last two days. Finally, he seemed to get the hint and give up, and she'd gotten lucky, way luckier than she realized at the time. Only a few days after they parted, Sandy's approached by police detectives who have questions about this so-called Daryl. They informed her that he was really Paul John Knowles, an ex-con suspected of committing a series of rapes and murders over the past four months. They grilled her about her connection with him, hinted that she could be charged as an accomplice. Also, how horrifying, detectives showed her photos of items taken from the car residence, and Sandy immediately identified several pieces of clothing that Daryl had worn during their time together. Police also informed her that the Chevy Impala belonged to a businessman named William Bates, whose strangled corpse had been dumped outside of Lima, Ohio, the previous or that uh, you know in September, and the kill list went on. They didn't know about all the murders, but they knew about a lot of them, like Charlene Hicks, the Texas woman he'd raped and murdered. Her corpse dragged through a barbed wire fence. The police asked Sandy if he'd given her any gifts. When she showed them a Mickey Mouse watch, they identified it as having belonged to young rape and murder victim Mandy Carr. Incredibly disturbing. Sandy Fox began to realize how lucky she was and began to suspect that she'd been allowed to live for one reason. Knowles' request to write a book about him. Meanwhile, Knowles had moved on. After his dalliance with Sandy, he met up with James and Susan McKenzie, a British couple who knew Sandy, who he was introduced to through Sandy, who now felt bad for Knowles because, uh, you know, he got dumped. He seemed so alone. Susan would mention that she had a hair appointment the next day and Knowles offered to drive her. She accepted. But then once in the car together, he, uh, you know, pulled over a few minutes into the drive and asked her for sex. When she refused, he pulled out a pistol. She fought back, knocked the weapon aside. As she screamed, she wrenched the car door open. Knowles grabbed a fistful of her hair, but she was able to break loose, ran it into the road, and then flagged down a car. 
She went straight to the police, told them everything that happened. Bulletin now goes out immediately with a description of the attacker and the name Daryl Golden. A few days later, a West Palm Beach police officer recognizes the stolen white Chevy Impala. Knowles is still driving like a fucking idiot and pulls him over. Knowles reaches for a sawed-off shotgun. The officer, who opened his car door, drops to the pavement when he sees that gun and uh, stays there while Knowles drives away. He got lucky, real lucky, that Knowles didn't fucking blast him. Must have been other witnesses. Knowing the police will be watching his car now, Knowles decides he needs a new one. That same afternoon, a wheelchair-bound woman named Beverly Maybe heard a knock at the door of her West Palm Beach home. The man behind it identified himself as Bob Williams from the IRS, asked to come in. Puzzled, but not wanting to seem uncooperative, she let him in. Don't let the IRS in. Fucking ever. Uh, Once inside, he told her that he needed a hostage and a getaway car because the police were after him. Beverly somehow managed to keep calm, knowing that he'd probably get violent if she screamed. She tells him that she doesn't have a car, but her sister Barbara Tucker is on her way, and uh, she does have a car. So he sits down and waits for Barb. Once Barb gets there, accompanied by her six-year-old son, Knowles ties up Beverly, tells the boy to go play in another room, and forces Barbara to drive with him to Fort Pierce in her beige Volkswagen. Like her sister, Barb remained calm, kept him talking, did everything he asked. She later said that he tried to rape her, but couldn't get an erection. Interviewed for that 11 11 Alive documentary I referenced, uh, uh, interviewed a few years ago, Barbara said, if I would have met Paul, or excuse me, if I would have met John Paul Knowles in a nightclub, I would have gone out with him. He was very good looking. Then regarding his sexual abilities, she said, he raped me over and over, but it, it wasn't rape in my mind because the man wasn't normal. He was not normal that way, sexually. He wasn't like a real man. He was trying, but he couldn't do anything. And she pauses for a long time and then just says, impotent. The way she said it on the dock, I, I imagine it would have enraged PJK to hear her. Uh, I loved it. She was like, nah, he's a fucking clown. Anyway, Paul left her tied up, gagged in a motel room on a Friday night before escaping in her car. Meanwhile, Beverly is able to wiggle out of her ties, calls police, reports Barbara's abduction, and both women uh, make it out of this alive. Immediately, the police link the description of her attacker to Daryl Golden. The police dust Beverly's home for fingerprints, show her some mugshots, able to finally put a name to the face of this killer now, Paul John Knowles. On the evening news, his photo is broadcast along with a warning to residents. The PGK is armed and dangerous. The walls are closing in. Now law enforcement officers all over the state are on the alert for Barbara Tucker's stolen Volkswagen being driven by PB&J. On November 16th, a 35-year-old Florida Highway Patrol trooper named Charles Eugene Campbell notices a car that seems to fit the description traveling on US-19 near the northern Florida city of Perry. Turning on his siren, he overtakes the vehicle, stops the driver for questioning. Knowles draws his gun before Campbell can reach for his. He orders the officer to cuff himself and get in the back of the patrol car. Campbell does as he's told. Knowles now abandons the Volkswagen, drives away in Campbell's cruiser. A passing motorist witnesses the kidnapping, calls the police, but by the time they have arrived, Knowles and Campbell are long gone. Knowles knows that the black and yellow patrol car he's driving stands out too much and that law enforcement is going to be looking for it. So he uses the siren to pull over a Ford Grand Torino, then herds the man driving it inside, James Meyer, business guy from Delaware, into the backseat along with Charles Campbell. Later that day, he'll pull into a gas station in Lakeland, Georgia, to buy a pack of smokes. The proprietor wonders why a uniformed police officer is in the backseat of the car, but because Campbell didn't seem to be struggling, didn't seem to look worried or scared, the proprietor writes it off and does not report it. November 17, 1974, two Georgia sheriff's deputies spot Paul's new stolen blue Ford traveling along Highway 42. Uh, no one is in the backseat. Uh, Knowles manages to evade their roadblocks until 1.10 p.m. that afternoon when he ran up against a police blockade near Stockbridge, Georgia. Instead of surrendering, he fucking floors it, right? Probably thought this was going to be his blaze of glory moment, his Bonnie and Clyde. Come and get me, coppers! 
You know, maybe the car would explode into flames like in an action movie. All the impact did was send the car craning into a tree. Knowles, uh, bloody and battered, but can still walk and can still run and starts running into the Henry County woods, firing a revolver behind him to keep the police uh, chasing him at bay. He does make it away from them. Inside the car, Georgia police officers find Campbell's hat and an empty gun belt. No blood in the back seat, so they're hopeful the hostages might be found alive. Orders are uh, go out to take Knowles in alive so we can tell them where the missing men are. For hours, police search the woods using tracking dogs and helicopters. Finally, when Knowles emerges from the clearing, a police officer does not spot him, but David Clark does, a local resident and Vietnam War veteran. David grabbed his honey shotgun, approached. Knowles had uh, wrapped a scarf around his injured hand to stop some bleeding. As David closed in, Knowles said, please help me. Well, David did not help him. At gunpoint, he escorted him to a neighbor's house and called the police. Then he did seem, based on uh, whatever kind of conversation these two had, to take some pity on him. Because when the police showed up and took Knowles into custody, Clark told him, don't hurt him. Fucking Casanova killer charmed another person. Police now took Knowles to the office of Dr. Joseph A. Blissett for a quick examination of his injured hand and wounded leg. Doctor found that the injuries were minor, so Knowles was then delivered to the Henry County Jail. When Knowles spotted the crowd of reporters around the jail, he literally laughed in delight. He fucking squealed. It's like being a celebrity, the way that they uh, crowded in on him, shouting questions, taking his picture. He loved it. Gave him such a rush of power, he refused to tell police whether his hostages were dead or alive. Decided to toy with him. He taunted him saying, one word, one word will reveal where these men are. But he refused to say what it was. Search for his hostages is uh, still underway. Night temperatures are frigid. And if the men are outside, they're risking death by exposure. Authorities float a plan to have Sandy Fox see if she can get anything out of Knowles. But she's already offered an exclusive interview about Paul to the Atlanta Constitution. So, won't help him. Uh, wouldn't be until November 21st, four days later, that the men's fate would be revealed. Deer hunters made the discovery inside a pine thicket. Meyer and Campbell had been handcuffed to a tree, and unfortunately, each man had been shot in the head execution style. Their bodies were cold. They'd been dead for days. When authorities told Knowles that the search was over, he fucking grinned, told him that the magic word was Pabst. There was a Pabst brewery very close to where the men were found. Happy with his joke, uh, Knowles laughed at it. What a piece of shit. Over the following days, he would tell authorities that he'd killed 18 people, not by saying it out loud, but by tracing a figure of 18 on his left palm over and over again of the number, you know, obviously. He'd write out a list of states where he killed on a piece of scrap paper, Texas, Florida, Georgia, Ohio, Virginia, Connecticut, Mississippi. Then when questioned by others, maybe wanting to sound more evil than he even was, he claimed now that he committed 35 murders. Investigators would only be able to eventually link him conclusively to 18, you know, with another two additional murders that we mentioned likely committed by Knowles. Meanwhile, the press was roaring along with the story, and much to his delight, he was given the nickname of the Casanova Killer. Any picture of Knowles seemed to capture his easy laugh, quick smile, devil-may-care attitude. At one point, he mentioned that the tapes he'd given to his attorney, or he mentioned the tapes that he had given to his attorney, saying the contents on those tapes would make him famous. Federal Judge Wilbur Owens now orders Shady Shelton Yavitz to hand those tapes over, but the lawyer refuses, citing attorney-client privilege. Neither Shelton or his, nor his wife, Patsy, would reveal where the tapes are, so Owens jails them both on contempt charges. Eventually, mostly to get his wife released, Yavitz uh, gives in. He surrenders two packages, uh, the tapes and Knowles' will, which left everything to his parents, and directed Yavitz to make my life story, record, and history, a record, sorry, make my life story, record, and history known to the world for the good of society. Fuck out of here, good of society. Uh, Knowles even suggested books, movies, and television as the ideal mediums for getting his amazing story out to the masses. Nope, sorry, buddy. 
This podcast where you've been constantly mocked is about as good as you're ever probably going to get. He did sadly get to experience a bit of local celebrityism before he died. Uh, Knowles was thrilled to see people lying in the streets outside the courthouse, especially those who were so eager to catch a glimpse of the killer that they climbed onto roofs and hung off balconies. He would smile at everyone in the courtroom, even the uh, hostile friends and family of the Carr family. Local attorney had been appointed to his defense team, Charles Markman, before Yavitz was released after handing those tapes over. Uh, before he did hand him over, Georgia governor and future president Jimmy Carter appointed state attorney general Arthur Bolton to prosecute Knowles for the Georgia murders. Florida also wanted to prosecute him for the murders of Marjorie Howie and Alice Curtis. Other states wanted to speak to him about murders they suspected he was responsible for, but no state would get the trial they wanted. PB&J, not going to be sticking around much longer. No pun intended with sticking. PB&J was too nuts <laughs> to make it to death row. Bad pun. Kind of intended with nuts. Uh, Thanksgiving Day, 1974, Hunter found William Bates' nude body in the woods outside of Lima. He'd been bound, gagged with electrical tape before being strangled. Another murder charge authorities uh, in another state now want to try him for. On December 4th, 1974, Knowles is secretly transferred to the Douglas County Jail in Douglasville because the facility there is considered more equipped to contain someone who had escaped custody before. There, Knowles will continue to field questions, sometimes helping investigators, sometimes hindering them. In mid-December, he agrees to show Sheriff Earl Lee where he had disposed of Trooper Campbell's service revolver. Uh, the gun was an important piece of evidence. He'd allegedly used it to murder the trooper and James Meyer, so they decided to let him uh, take him there. On December 18th, Sheriff Lee and Georgia Bureau of Investigation agent Ron Angel put Knowles in a car so he can show them where in Henry County he had disposed of the weapon. Lee drove while Angel sat up front beside him and Knowles sat in the back, shackled by his wrists and ankles. They were on US-20 near Lee Road when Sheriff Lee noticed that Knowles had lit a cigarette. Slowing down the car, he asked Knowles to hand it over. Instead of complying, Knowles put out the cigarette, lurched forward, revealing that one of his wrists was free while the handcuffs dangled off the other. He leans over the seat, grabs the sheriff's gun, which uh, goes off through the holster. While Lee tries to control the car and push Knowles away, Ron Angel draws his gun, quickly shoots Knowles three fucking times. First bullet enters his chest, hits a bone, exits out to his right side. Second hits him under the right arm. Third lodges in his brain, killing him instantly. Car skids off the highway, goes down a small embankment, stops against a barbed wire fence post. Lee radios news to headquarters. A pathologist soon arrives and pronounces Paul John Knowles fucking dead. And uh, they soon found out how Knowles had undone his handcuffs. It was uh, a tip he received in his daily astrology. No, it was uh, his horoscope. No, it was a broken piece of paperclip wedged into the right cuff's lock. So it must have hit it somewhere on him. James Campbell, the brother of the murdered trooper, was thrilled by the news. He'd tell a reporter, I'm just tickled to death that he died. I was afraid that he'd go into court, get declared insane, and go into a mental hospital. I'm glad it happened this way. Yeah, I imagine I might feel the same way. Fuck that guy. PB&J left behind few belongings in his jail cell. One was a uh, photograph of an electric chair that he ripped out of a magazine. Another was a, a, a letter to Angela Kovic, still thinking about her, I guess. As a letter where he described himself as both Clyde Barrow and John Dillinger. When this is over, he wrote, I will be more famous. Nope. Dude still hasn't even gotten a Netflix doc during the height of the Western world's true crime obsession. Also scrawled on his cell wall in fading pencil was Paul John Knowles, December 4th, 1974 till question mark. And finally, there was his horoscope for the day ripped from a magazine. December 18th, 1974. Hey, Sagittarius, what in the fucking fuck are you doing still sitting in prison? You're a badass centaur. 
You're the archer, and a shooter's gotta shoot. Get your sad centaur dick up off your bunk, believe in yourself, and break out of this dump. Go for it. Be the infamous outlaw you're destined to be. Also, your lucky number is seven, and your lucky color is mauve. And you are likely to romantically meet a Gemini this week. Your opposite signs actually have much more in common than you think. Gemini rules the so-called lower mind, common sense, reasoning, facts, hard data, intellect. Combined with your governance of the higher mind of wisdom, philosophy, consciousness, ethics, and metaphysics, together you can find sweet neurological nirvana. But first, use a paperclip to break free of your handcuffs and grab that gun, sir! Come on, let's fucking go! No. No horoscope of sound in his cell, but you knew that. Back to reality. Uh, PB&J's corpse was taken to the Whitley and Tidwell funeral home. Owner Steve Tidwell was instantly overloaded with requests to see the remains. One teenage girl pleaded, come on, I've never seen a mass murder before. It's fucking creepy. Uh, Steve refused them all. He was glad when the body was placed in a wooden casket and on its way to the Atlanta airport. From there, it would be flown uh, to the fucking uh, sewage plant. Just dumped in a bunch of shit. No, it was taken to Noel's father's in Jacksonville for burial. There was still an inquest hearing about how Knowles' death had gone down, though. The inquest jury believed that Knowles had conned his jailers into taking him out of the jail so he could break loose. His shady Florida attorneys thought otherwise. Old fucking Sheldon insisted his client had been set up for execution, and PB&J's other attorney, Charles, agreed. Chuck and Sheldon said he had a letter from a Knowles' former cellmate who swore that Knowles... Uh, said he'd be killed before a trial. Yeah, because he wanted to. He'd been talking about that for years. Uh, the inquest hearing would absolve Sheriff Lee and Agent Ron Angel of any crime and how they dealt with Knowles' escape attempt. Of course. The office is probably just looking for a big settlement, right? If the police had fucked up some, somehow, you know, maybe he would just get a bunch of money. Again, that dude seems like a scumbag to me. The two men involved in killing Knowles would go on to receive near-universal acclaim for taking out one of the country's worst men. Sheila McGuire, the sheriff's secretary, told reporters that the office phone was ringing off the hook with most of the callers wanting to congratulate her boss. Hell yeah, hell Nimrod. Dude was a rabid dog. Needed to be put down. It's a nice ending to his story. Uh, when Angela Kovic heard about her former lover's death, she drove across the country to Jacksonville to attend his funeral. Although her rejection of him seemed to be what set him off, she told reporters, I love, well, set him, according to some, set him off. Uh, but she told reporters, I loved him. If he had escaped this time, I would have gone with him. Well, that's fucking gross. Uh, Knowles was buried in Jacksonville, Florida with only his family and Angela in attendance. The Baptist minister who officiated literally refused to pray that Knowles' soul was going to rest in peace. Eh, good for him. Feels fair. 1977, Sandy Fox's book about Paul John's Knoll comes out. She would title it Killing Time, later republished again as a Natural Born Killer. And uh, it did okay. Not great. She claimed that Knowles was only able to come near her by masturbating, that he was not able to ever penetrate her. Was he only able to have vaginal sense, uh, vag- vaginal sex if violence was involved? Or was he actually gay and just never came to terms with his real sexuality? I mean, it sounded earlier like he was able to have plenty of sex in prison. Or was he just a complete maniac with a fucking hornet's nest for a brain and sexual preference terms like straight or gay don't apply to him? He was something else. Uh, January 2011, last timeline entry for today. Police investigators in Georgia finally identified the remains of young Ima Jean Sanders. Ima's mother and sister submitted samples of their DNA to the Austin County, Texas Sheriff's Office. They never gave up looking for her, never stopped wondering what happened to her. They hoped she'd made a new life for herself somewhere, but also wanted to know if she, you know, had been harmed. The Sheriff's Office sent the samples to the University of North Texas Center for Human Identification, where they were uploaded into the Relatives of Missing Persons Index of the Combined DNA Index Systems, CODIS, and there was a match. 
The remains from Peach County belonged to Ima. It was only after the match was confirmed that investigators then spoke with the current and retired investigators of Knowles' crimes. They wanted the audio tapes that had been surrendered to Judge Owens, but were told that the only copies of the tapes and their transcripts had been destroyed years ago when the courthouse in Macon had flooded. But then, a search in the Georgia Bureau of Investigation archives yielded a letter written in 1975 by the U.S. attorney. Uh, it summarized a portion of the tape confessions, and a passage read, Sometime in August 1974, four, excuse me, Knowles picked up a white female hitchhiker named Alma, who represented her age as 13 or 14, but who appeared to be in her late teens. He carried this girl to a wooded area some distance from Macon, possibly west. He raped her, then strangled her and left. Left her body in the woods between trees approximately two weeks later. He returned to the location and found that the body had been moved eight or ten feet away, apparently by animals. The body was greatly deteriorated and barely identifiable as a human being. Knowles found her jawbone and buried it in another area. Captain Chris Rooks of the Warner Robins Police Department flew to Texas to deliver the news to Imogene's relatives personally. Betty received her daughter's ashes from him and would say, After 38 years of waiting to know, you feel like the walls closed in. I carried her home from the hospital. And I get to carry her home today. Eh, can't fucking imagine. And with that, let's get out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. And real quick before I recap, time for a very important, uh, super real sponsor message. Today's Time Talk is brought to you once again by Whipple! Astrology Edition. New custom flavors for all 12 signs. Apple Machete Aries. Grape TNT Taurus. Blood Orange Gasoline Gemini. Papaya Cocaine Cancer. Marionberry Landmine Leo. Banana Scorpion Venom Virgo. Huckleberry Laser Gun Libra. Chocolate Sledgehammer Scorpio. Raspberry Swing Blade Sagittarius. Vanilla Chocolate Capricorn. Fruit Punch Atomic Bomb Aquarius. And Purple Drink Pitchfork Pisces. All flavors made with supposedly toxic, even in small doses. Ingredients according to the FDA, but fuck those pussies! Don't let the system tell you what's good for you! Be brave, don't think for yourself, and pound some fucking Whipple! Fuck you, fuck your family, and drink Whipple! Astrology Edition! Whipple is now a proud subsidiary of Bear Evil Incorporated. The only corporation in the world with the balls to admit we only care about money and don't give a damn about our customers. Oh, cool. All right. Bear owns Whipples now. Uh, really not surprised. It feels like a great partnership, actually. And I'm back for the recap. Uh, the Casanova Killer. It's a little harder to do that last little segment with a different tech setup. But you know what? Fucking, you know, you just do what you got to do to get the sponsor messages out as best you can. Uh, Casanova Killer, Paul John Knowles, PJK, PB&J. What a super fucking <sighs> cool guy, I guess. You know, I mean, kind of an inspiring episode. I mean, if I could be any serial killer, I would definitely want to be him. I mean, the fact that he owned who he was, he made these tapes, didn't hide the fact that he was a ruthless killer. I do respect that. He was just, he lived an authentic life. I mean, he went for it. He fucking went for it. And good for him. You wanted to be the best. I mean, what's not to like about that? What's not to respect? Largely as a culture, I mean, you know, we respect Michael Jordan for pushing himself past where other peers were willing to push themselves in order to be the best basketball player ever. 
We respect Tom Brady for tirelessly working on his craft year after year after year to be the best quarterback of all time, but we're not supposed to respect, no, excuse me, admire Paul John Knowles for trying to be the most successful serial killer ever for trusting his daily horoscopes to lead him to immortal fucking glory? No, he's a piece of shit. Uh, He's a loser. Uh, Knowles told a prison psychiatrist that he uh, truly felt no remorse for any of his killings. Not even for the kids. Yeah, the dude had a horrible childhood, abusive dad, years of abuse undoubtedly, suffered at the Florida School for Boys, perhaps rapes there as well. Didn't have it easy, but that's no excuse. Thousands of kids from shitty homes also were sent to the Florida School for Boys. How many of them also became serial killers? Zero that I know of. It's a choice on some level to be that evil. Back when he was a kid, Paul dreamed of becoming a bad, bad man. Why? What connections were not quite wired right in his head? What early choices combined with circumstances and temperament sent him on a dark path that he never walked off of? He sure accomplished his goal. What a fucked up goal to have. No one should ever want to be infamous. Far better to be forgotten, right? You're not going to be alive either way to know what people are saying. Or if your spirit does live on and has awareness of what's still happening in this realm of the living, what the fuck are you doing hanging around here checking to see what people are saying about you? Go evolve past all that noise, you spectral ding-dong, right? Get over your former self. If you want to be remembered, want to be remembered for doing something good or for being good at something that has positive value. I mean, I personally, uh, I'm driven to try and become a a better storyteller, a better comic, to write, you know, better bits that will matter to people in ways that uh, help them, maybe inspire them creatively, maybe pull them out of a dark place in their minds with some fucked up humor, uh, you know, some escapist you know, entertainment so they don't feel as alone. Get away from their troubles for a little while. I feel better when I hear a message of you inspired me to go back to school or chase my dreams or, you know, um, be more content with the life I already have than I do when I hear a message of, uh, dude, that was so fucking funny. Both have value. Don't get me wrong. Love knowing that some people find me funny. Uh, 100%. Love knowing that some people find my horror horror storytelling abilities on scared to death uh, to be good. You know, enjoy the way I present stories and information. But when you... Take something I do and apply it to what you do in a way helpful, not to me, but to you. That fulfills me the most. I think about the butterfly effect, right? Of uh, I make you feel better. You make someone else feel better. They make someone else feel better. Maybe that next person doesn't shoot up a school or something. What we do does matter. We can make the world a bit better or we can make it a bit worse. Or like PB&J, we can make it a lot worse. At the end of the day, my dark, cynical to some ass is actually pretty sensitive. Uh, I want to add positive value to the world I sometimes see as a constantly burning dumpster fire on my worst days. And part of the reason I want to add something good is because of how aware I am of how many people don't. People who, in their most extreme form, show up in the world as someone like Paul John Knowles. Right? A lot of entertainers I've met over the years don't seem to really care about anyone other than themselves. They mostly just want to be as famous as possible. I don't know, so they can throw their ego weight around or something, feel superior to others who don't have as many followers on various platforms. You know, they, they treat people who can't help their career like shit or like they just don't matter. And how fucking sad, what is, what a sad goal it is to have infamy or fame in that way. Like how sad that Paul's dream was to be widely known for being a morally bankrupt asshole, just a piece of shit who contributed nothing good to the world around him, who added just pain and misery. I would rather not, you know, live at all than be known for that. Fuck hollow fame. It's morally worthless. It can put money in your pocket, but so can human trafficking. So can selling Coke laced with fentanyl. Don't chase fame. Don't chase infamy. Chase a quality life. 
Chase creativity if you want to be in the fame game in some kind of entertainment way. Chase craft mastery. And if fame comes with that, okay, cool, cool bonus. If it doesn't, still cool. You're good at something. Maybe really good. And those around you know it. You know it. That has value. You can take pride in your craft, whether five people or five million know about it. Yeah, fuck Hall of Fame and fuck uh, Paul John Knowles for chasing it. I'm glad his dick was limp. If he's a specter wandering around this uh, earth, I hope his uh, spirit dick still limp. I'm glad I'll never be seen as more uh, by true crime fans than a uh, bottom tier serial killer when it comes to notoriety. Glad his confession tapes are lost. They were never released to the public, but were reviewed by a grand jury in 1975. And then the tapes, along with, uh, you know, the full transcripts, destroyed after being ruined beyond repair in a flood of the federal courthouse in Macon. They'll never be used to make a hit docuseries. Instead, outside of the occasional podcast appearance, Knowles will mostly be lost to history. That makes me glad. Also glad he was into horoscopes. That was fun for me. I hope it was fun for you. (laughs) It made my stupid ass laugh. Uh, Now let's go over a few of this idiot's deeds one last time with today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Paul John Knowles killed 18 people, perhaps the full 20 we listed, or maybe even the 35 as he claimed between July 26, 1974 and November 16th, 1974. After being dumped by his fiancee, Angela Kovic, on the advice of her psychic, uh, Knowles embarked on a cross-country road trip from hell that would lead him through Florida, Georgia, Ohio, Nevada, Texas, Alabama, Connecticut, and Virginia. He'd move from kill to kill any lives indiscriminately. Women, men, children. Then he'd take what supplies he needed to get to the next place. He'd take cash, credit cards, cars, clothing, anything he could use to fund his on-the-run chaotic lifestyle. Number two, Paul John Knowles was nicknamed the Casanova Killer. A better nickname uh, might be the Ego Killer. Killed primarily because he wanted to be famous, wanted TV shows, movies, books made about him. As he told his lawyer, Shady Sheldon, gave Sheldon a series of tapes that he thought would make him infamous after his death, but actually just ended up sticking Sheldon and his wife in jail for a while. And he sought out Sandy Fox because she was a hard-hitting journalist, told her that she ought to write a book about him because he would soon be killed for something he'd done, and the world would know about it. Number three, Paul John Knowles was killed by Georgia Bureau of Investigation agent Ron Angel, After Knowles promised to show investigators where they could find the gun he used to kill a hostage and a state trooper. Knowles used a stolen paperclip to get free from his handcuffs, try and grab a weapon. Did grab a weapon. At that point, Agent Angel shot him three times, uh, first in the body, finally in the head. Knowles died after that third shot, and a killer's unnecessary reign of terror was at an end. Number four, Paul John Knowles spent six different stints at the Florida School for Boys, a place that only recently come to be recognized for the brutality it inflicted on thousands. At the Florida School for Boys, children who could be as young as five, perhaps as young as three, were subject to beatings by classmates and staff, whippings that lasted hours, sexual abuse in a cartoonishly evil-sounding basement rape room, and more insane atrocities, including on some occasions outright murder. Dozens of students were killed on the premises, uh, buried in unmarked graves, some of which were graves their classmates dug. Much like with the Elan School, the full extent of these abuses wouldn't be revealed until the 2010s when victims began coming forward with their stories despite their shame and trauma. Long before anyone knew about how hellish the Florida School for Boys was, it would be the place where John Paul Knowles spent his formative years. Being abused in all likelihood. Seeing classmates get abused. Seeing classmates disappear, sometimes without a trace. This might not have made him into a serial killer, but it sure shit didn't help him become a decent person. And number five, new info. Where does the term Casanova originally come from? Well, it goes back to one person, 
Uh, Giacomo Casanova. Casanova was an Italian adventurer, author from the Republic of Venice, born April 2nd, 1725. And his autobiography, Story of My Life, is regarded as one of the most authentic sources of the customs and norms of European social life during the 18th century. He became famous for his many affairs with women, so famous that his name became synonymous with womanizer. But womanizer doesn't actually really do this guy justice. In reality, dude was a disgusting sexual predator, a fucking dirtbag, not a womanizer, a rapist and a pedophile. Uh, Incest was on his long list of transgressions. Maybe Casanova Killer is a good name for Paul John Knowles. These uh, guys were both fucking disgusting. Here's some of the shit that the one-time priest in training Casanova did. In the early 1750s, he rented a room from a woman named Madame Quinson, began a sexual relationship with her daughter, Mimi, who was, according to him, between 15 and 16 years of age. After Mimi became pregnant, her mother apparently demanded Casanova marry her. Casanova, who was already married, not interested, brought to court, he told the judge, no one could prove he was the father of Mimi's child. So, deadbeat dad, fucking over some teen lover he used. Cool. During Carnival in in 1745, after one of Casanova's friends suggested it would be a good joke for Casanova and seven other men to abduct abduct, excuse me, and rape a woman, uh, as he wrote in his memoir, memoirs, uh, they did that. And according to Casanova, she loved it. Highly fucking doubt that. 1747, Casanova received a court summons after an injured girl's mother filed a complaint. Casanova's declaration of defense claimed the mom had sold him her daughter's virginity. He explained that he tried to have sex there, but that she refused and made a violent effort to resist him. So he beat the shit out of her. He wrote, I got a hold of a broomstick, gave her a good lesson in order to get something for the 10 sequins, which I had been foolish enough to pay in advance. But I have broken none of her limbs and I took care to apply my blows only on her posteriors, on which spot I have no doubt that all the marks may be seen. In the evening, I made her dress herself again, sent her back in a boat, which chanced to pass and she was landed in safety. The mother received 10 sequins. The daughter has kept her hateful maidenhood. <laughs> Jesus. And if I'm guilty of anything, it is only of having given a thrashing to an infamous girl, the pupil of a still more infamous mother. Uh-huh. Casanova's victims were by his own account as young as nine, often adolescent girls. 1765, when he was 40, he purchased a 12-year-old girl in St. Petersburg as a sexual slave. In his memoirs, described the Russian girl as emphatically prepubescent. Said her breasts had still not finished budding. She was in her 13th year. She had nowhere the definitive mark of puberty. 1761, dude even slept with his own teenage daughter. And later wrote, I have never been able to understand how a father could tenderly love his charming daughter without having slept with her at least once. And this motherfucker's name went on to become an English term for someone who gets along well with the ladies. First used in that context around 1852, given its actual history, I think we should probably retire it. Fuck the Casanova killer and fuck the original Casanova as well. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Despite some text situations, the Casanova killer Paul John Knowles still got sucked. Thank you as always to everyone involved. Start with Logan Keith today. The fucking Keith, the art warlock, directing and producing today under different circumstances. We always just figure out how to get it done. I'm very, very happy about that so far. Uh, thanks, uh, as always to the queen of bad magic, Lindsay Cummins, creating the time for me to do this show week in, week out, including today. Thanks to Bitelixer for upkeep on the time suck app, the art warlock again, uh, creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com. Check those posters out, helping run our socials along with our suck ranger, Tyler C and a team managed by our social media strategist, Ryan Handelsman. Thanks to producer Sophie Evans again with the initial research. 
Thanks to the all-seeing eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page, the Mod Squad, making sure Discord is fun and running, and everyone on the Time Suck subreddit and the Bad Magic subreddit. So many places. So many other Facebook groups to find uh, people who like this show and people who you may uh, be able to befriend. Next week, we're releasing a very different kind of true crime suck. Deep diving on the infamous Bloods and Crips. Southern California gangs immortalized in the hip-hop culture I grew up with in the 90s. How do these gangs, notorious for an extremely bloody rivalry that included loads of drive-by shootings, get started? Well, they were founded by some high school teens. Crips founded in 1969 by two high schoolers, Raymond Washington and Stanley Tookie Williams, who formed an alliance to protect their neighborhoods from other young people who were, uh, who were harassing them. As the years passed, this evolved into something completely out of their control, something that led to literally thousands of murders. Stanley Williams, Raymond Washington couldn't have known what their small street gang was going to turn into and that the Bloods gang would soon rise up as a powerful rival. Today, the Bloods and Crips are known all over the country for the violent crimes they commit against their rivals and innocent bystanders. Wasn't always like that, though. At one point, they were localized to South Central LA. The conditions in uh, South Central created a perfect breeding ground for gang violence. Young black people growing up surrounded by racist discrimination, a lack of community resources, police officers who hated them, wanted to keep them out of white neighborhoods. Many of the civil rights leaders and Black Panthers they once looked up to had been assassinated or sentenced to lengthy prison terms, and now angry youth street gangs rose into power in a climate of hopelessness and rage. With strong bonds formed through years of shared experiences of racism and discrimination, Bloods and Crips gangs took over their respective territories and enforced those boundaries with astonishing brutality. The murder and crime rates in L.A. skyrocketed. Gangs engaged in fights, shootings, stabbings, other serious crimes. Crack cocaine epidemic only added to this allowed the Bloods and Crips to expand across the entire U.S. through alliances with various drug cartels. Rap music and movies, movies glamorize the gang lifestyle, but was it, is it, really so glamorous? Bloods and Crips next week on Time Suck. Right now, let's head over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. First update doesn't have anything to do with the previous episode or with me or even with these shows. Uh, My cousin, Zach, who never reaches out for anything, has a woman who works for him um, over in uh, Wyoming whose son, Kyle Ellis, has been missing for years. Last seen dropped off at a gas station in Grable, Wyoming. The former honor, so I'm just going to help him to get the word out. The former honor student and athlete has been, uh, had been suffering from mental illness and drug abuse in the years leading up to his disappearance. He is, uh, 33 now, good-looking dude, sleeve tattoo on his left arm, or at least, you know, this is from four years ago when he's last seen, uh, sleeve tattoo on his left arm, tattoo on his right shoulder, six feet tall, 190 pounds when he disappeared, athletic frame, Caucasian, dark brown hair, hazel eyes, uh, tattooed across his abdomen is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. If you think you've seen him, you can find a photo online easily by searching, searching Kyle Ellis missing person. Please email his mother, Heather Vanderhoof, uh, directly, Heather at conceptzhp.com that's heather at conceptzhp.com if you can't remember that you can email us as always bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com he's one of uh, several people to go missing from the Grable, Wyoming area in recent years little town of just over 2,000 people Uh, hope this helps Heather cannot imagine what you've gone through Uh, and now some suck related messages starting off with a super sack space lizard Scooter McGee who has a question about last week's episode he writes, hey, Time Suck team, Scoots here. I said, uh, yeah, not Scooter, Scoots. Uh, Scoots here, I just finished listening to episode 316 and I'm left with a question burning in my mind. If Bear's not the most evil corporation in the world, then who is? 
If the Suckmaster had to choose, if there could be no ties, who is the most evil corporation in the world? I must know your faithful space leader, Scooter McGee. Oh, okay, I wasn't crazy. You say Scoots and Scooter. Uh, okay, this is really tough because there are so many that are so bad in so many different ways. But if I had to pick one, in recent history, I would say Purdue Pharma. I mean, how many opioid overdoses and life-destroying addictions to opioids did the Sackler family's greed directly lead to? Maybe the worst drug cartel of all time. Now, this one might get me in trouble. Looking at things in a different light, I would say the Catholic Church is the most evil corporation in the history of the world, right? I mean, if the salvation they've sold isn't real and it's more of a business, and most of the world does not believe what they're selling now, then how many people have died in vain, been burned, as heretics for not believing or as witches died, you know, violently in the crusades or the Spanish Inquisition. How many native people around the world have been butchered? How many children molested? How many cultures destroyed? How much wealth built off of selling fear of eternal damnation off of selling the promise of salvation? How many wars have been fought? How many tens of millions have died on behalf of the church of Rome? To me, no one single institution throughout the course of human history has as much blood on their hands due to the size of their following, millennia of cultural influence and longevity, no one else to me is even fucking close. Next up, shout out request from a humble servant of Nimrod, sweet sack Justin Kraft who writes, suck nasty, humble and loyal spaces are Justin coming in fucking hot. Been wanting to write this in for a while now and this week's Time Sucker updates on the Bear AG episode inspired me to do so. I want to ask for a special shout out for my kick-ass fiance, Amber. 2022 has kicked us in the nuts a couple times. I'm by no means asking for a pity party, but we all have our trials and tribulations. And I really hope a shout out from the Suckmaster can bring some positive vibes to my best friend and soulmate. She has sacrificed so much for our family this year. Both of us have been busting our asses, working all the overtime we can to keep our ship afloat. But I want her to know that she is the glue that keeps our family together. She's the best mother to my two awesome stepsons. She is the boss bitch that keeps this meat sack walking the line. I'm a firm believer that not too many people can honestly say their life partner is also their best friend. Fuck, am I lucky to be one of those few? Oh man, me too. So I feel you there. Uh, we just celebrated our seven year anniversary in August. As a little anniversary getaway, I'm so fucking pumped to say that after waiting for years to see you live, we're driving about three hours straight north from Indiana to see you in Grand Rapids on October 22nd. Also the first time we've ever stayed in a hotel room together alone because we've always traveled with the kids. That's right. After seven years, Lucifina's presence will be strong. All right. Then to top it off as an early Christmas present, she got us tickets to see you in Indianapolis for the Burn It All Down tour. Second row center, meet and greet tickets. Greatest woman in the world, I tell you, I say all this not to gloat, but to say none of what's going on in this one space of this world would be possible without this incredible woman and human being. She is so beautiful inside and out. So self, I love that you're writing this. So selfless and so hardworking. I truly wanted to know, want her to know that all her sacrifices do not go unnoticed. Thank you for all you do day in and day out, baby. And finally to you, Sir Suckington, let me suck your dick for a moment. Uh, that's good because we talked earlier on the secret suck about how Logan's tired of, you know, dicks and sucking. Uh, it means so fucking much to so many thousands of people. The impact you've had in all our lives and the butterfly effect is immeasurable. I can't imagine how many of these you get. So I totally understand you can't get them all on air. Just know I appreciate the time you take to read them on top of the other stuff you do. Can't wait to finally see you in about two and a half weeks. Three out of five stars wouldn't change a thing. And hail fucking Nimrod. Well, hail Nimrod to you, Justin. And hail Nimrod and hail Lucifina to your boss, bitch, Amber. So much respect to both of you 
Uh, man, you hardworking, persevering meat sacks. And actually, Lindsay and I had a good talk earlier this week. I've been not as romantic as I used to be early in the relationship. I used to write these really nice letters and say these kind of things that you just said in this message. And I just got out of the habit. And, you know, it, it bummed her out. She brought it up a few times. I just didn't start doing it again. And then I just like this week just took 20, 30 minutes and wrote this really nice card, just exactly the feelings I had. And it made her so fucking happy. So I love seeing other people express this to their partners. You know, sometimes we just feel weird or get embarrassed or act like we don't have time, but these little things can matter so much. Uh, Much respect to both of you for just being so, yeah, so hardworking. Glad you can make it to some shows. In the the subject line, I didn't mention it, but you mentioned being on shrooms for the shows. Maybe that was a joke, but if you're not kidding, you might want to take a low dose uh, on the shroom front for for my comedy show. Going to be covering some darker subjects, getting into some weird places, you know, with jokes that might not mix that well with a heavy dose. But you know how they hit you. I can't imagine trying to follow a stand-up show on too much shrooms, but they tend to not make me giggly like they do with some people, like a lot of people. Uh, so that's my drug advice for the week. Uh, now going to end on a touching message from a super sack Ken Sternberg who wants to let us know a little bit about his uh, hero of a brother and talk about, I guess, kind of a butterfly effect, just, just how much our lives in ways we may not expect can affect others. So Ken writes, greetings to the mush mouther, uh, fucker suck master and the rest of the bad magic team. First off, sorry for yelling in the subject line. <laughs> oh yeah, the, all the caps. I do apologize, but this message is very important. I didn't think my first message to the suck master would be of this nature, but here it goes. Before we get into it, I'd like to uh, give a brief overview of myself and my love for the suck. I was exposed to this crazy ass podcast by my over the road driver trainer, excuse me, with a trucking company, TMC Dylan Brewer. Shout out to him because without him, I wouldn't have found this gym when I did. Back in 2020, got my class A CDL, went over the road with TMC, was only with them for about a month before getting a local job with my local Lowe's, doing flatbed deliveries to customers, allowing me to be home every night with my fiance and two boys. It's awesome. First suck you had me, or my friend had me listen to was the Disney suck. Fuck you, Roy Disney. LOL. I've been hooked ever since. Had to go back, start from the beginning, because that's how I am. Fast forward, and now it's September of 22. I'm almost caught up on episode 296, part one of the Holocaust. So if you read this on air, it's going to be a little before I hear it. This podcast, this community that's been built around it are just special and I love it. Hearing all the Time Sucker updates about everyone's lives, Cummins Law victims, helping each other out, just everything in general. The podcast has done so much for so many people in so many different ways. A little bit about me now. I'm 32, born in 1990, you young man. Uh, woo, 90s babies. Uh, joined the Army National Guard here in Missouri in 2010, served in the military intelligence sector as an imagery analyst. Sounds fucking cool. Basically playing Where's Waldo with bad guys via satellite and drone imagery. I have two older siblings, brother and sister, adopted, but that doesn't matter. We're just as close. Four younger siblings, three sisters and one brother. Two of my younger siblings are full, two are half. Needless to say, my family has always been a little crazy due to the size, but always full of so much love. I now reside in Southern Missouri, close to Springfield and drive a local delivery semi for Lowe's Home Improvement, which I love doing. Get to drive around the area, explore new roads, meet lots of new people. Now, the main reason for this message, I wish my first message was under better circumstances. I was waiting until I was all the way caught up before writing in, but unfortunately, this message cannot wait until then. This last Wednesday, September 14th, my 16-year-old brother had a tragic accident. Not going to go into all the details because we're still trying to figure out exactly what happened. Anyway, the paramedics were able to get his heart beating again, rushed him to a local hospital. I met my mom and sister there. By the time I arrived, the Lifeline helicopter was already en route to flying him to Springfield, Missouri, about 40 minutes by car away from my town, to the main hospital there. His heart was beating, but he had to have a respirator, and his brain was not active. 
After we walked him to the chopper, my mom and two sisters drove to Springfield to meet him there. I went to my mom's to take care of the animals, clean up uh, the house, the mess that was made. There was some blood. I didn't want my mom to have to be the one to clean it up. Told him if I needed to drive down that night, I would, but uh, if not, I'd be down the next morning. So now it's the morning of the 15th. My fiance and I get our boys, nine and five, to the bus to go to school, take care of our animals, two dogs, 10 cats, two horses, Jesus Christ, a pony and a miniature donkey. Holy shit. Then head over to mom's, take care of her dogs and cats. We get down to Springfield and the update was that they had done another test overnight, still no brain activity. When we get there, they had just stopped all his sedation and pain meds so they could run the test again with no interference. Unfortunately, hours later, the results were the same. My fiance and I had already gone back home for the day because we had to be home for the boys to get off the bus at the house. Got those results around 4 p.m. And at that time, he was now legally declared dead. We went back down the next day, the 16th, to say goodbye with our boys this time so they could say goodbye to their uncle. Hardest part was telling my nine-year-old because my brother was very close to him. They loved to play video games together, draw, do lots of other things. We stopped by my mom's house to grab some shirts they wanted because my mom, three younger sisters, and my brother all had matching Hawaiian shirts with parrots on them, and they wanted to wear them. Everyone else dressed in Hawaiian shirts, bright colors, and anything Steve would have liked. My nine-year-old also gave him a Pikachu Pokemon card to take with him on his journey beyond because they both loved Pokemon and Pikachu was their favorite. They both got their love of Pokemon from me. He was an or, or, yeah, excuse me, he was an organ donor. So we got a final walkout from his room to the ambulance that took him to the airport to fly to St. Louis where the transplant team was waiting. And it was beautiful. The hospital staff, well, I didn't know they did this, lined two full hallways as we walked him out. We played a song for him as we walked. The song was a bit ridiculous, but that's what he would have wanted. The song was what he called his summer anthem. For this summer, the song is Betty by Young Gravy. If you haven't listened to it, please do. It's not really an appropriate song for that situation, but Steve would have loved it. The hospital staff gave my mom a bear that had his heartbeat in it and a mold of his hand in a real nice wooden box. We went back to my mom's that night, had a small get-together with our family that was there and a few of his friends, sat around a campfire, listened to a playlist we were making for him that the transplant team could play while they harvested his organs for transplant. That's heavy. We got an update from the transplant team on the 18th that they could successfully, or that they had successfully transplanted everything they could, and below is the message we received. I know this update may be bittersweet, but I wanted to let you know that because of Steve, several lives have been saved and changed forever. Thank you. Will never be enough. But from the bottom of my heart, thank you. You and your family are in my thoughts, but I know you're in many of the uplifting thoughts of the 16-year-old female whose life is saved because of a brand new beating heart. The 65-year-old male who's taking brand new breaths because of the life-saving gift of lungs. The 43-year-old male whose life is saved with the gift of a liver. The 55-year-old female who's receiving a second chance at life with the gift of a pancreas and left kidney. And the 36-year-old man who gets a second chance at life through a right kidney. Steven is a hero to so many. His legacy continues. Wow. Holy shit again. Man, five lives. Five lives saved by your brother because he was an org- organ donor. What a great reminder of why that's important. So sorry for your loss. And thank you for sharing this story. Uh, I knew organ donation was important, but I didn't think about how many lives could be saved by one person literally giving their body to others. That is fucking powerful stuff. I know a GoFundMe for your brother has been posted in the Cult of Curious 2 Facebook group. Uh, If you haven't already, I'm sure you can post it in numerous other Bad Magic-related Facebook groups to get the word out more as well. Uh, Nimrod is beyond pleased with Steven. Now he can live on in the bodies of five other people, which is pretty magical. 
Huge thanks to all the doctors and staff who work so hard to improve our lives in ways like this all the time. People whose names we may never know, but do shit like make organ transplants possible. People who are the opposite of Paul John Knowles. And there are more of those people out there than there are the opposite. I'm convinced of that. Take care of each other, everybody. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast is done. Please do not kill anyone in an attempt to get famous this week. But if you must, can you at least make sure that the person you kill is a pedophile? And keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. October 2022. Just in general. Hey, Sagittarius. You're going to listen to an episode of the Time Suck podcast about uh, serial killer Paul John Knowles. What a twat. Also, you don't have any lucky numbers this month. Literally every number is unlucky for you. You don't have any lucky colors either. It's best to avoid all the colors this month. You're also not likely to romantically meet anyone at all this month or year or even decade. You're going to die alone, Sagittarius. Don't get mad at me, get mad at Venus. It's in triple retrograde. It's not vibrating hard enough to send you the right frequencies and whatnot. It's lower house, it's flooded, some kind of septic pump problem, I'm guessing. Good luck, Gemini. You're going to fucking need it. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.